0: Just go to Indeed.com slash wire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
1: This is the Gator Nation football podcast with your hosts Alan Williams and James DeBergillian.
0: This place is an
2: the oh, now we know we're just a bunch of average stiffs. Scared money don't make money, you know?
1: Welcome back to the Gator Nation football podcast, everyone. I'm Alan Williams. Of course, I'm here with James DeRogileo. Well, that happened. The Gators fall. You all watched it. You all felt terrible, just like we did. We're going to talk about everything. Richardson, Napier, fourth down, Kentucky.
2: But first, James, how are you doing over there right now? I'm doing better than I was on Saturday. Okay. When you and I sat together in the we swamp did. and it was shocking. Shocking is the right word. And we're going to explain why I said that. I made the mistake. Of on the walk home, Alan going to our Twitter page <laughs> you and <laughs> you spit out a hot tweet, posting something that was true, and I stand by it. And I'm going to talk about it now. But I basically said that it was a a colossal collapse from week one to week two, a significant regression that raised a lot of questions, which was true and is true. Um, and Twitter only lets you have so many words, so you can't explain your thoughts. You can on a podcast, but we're going to unpack it but i want to i want to open before i get to the usual thanking everyone for supporting the show which is why we do it first it means a lot to us i hadn't had a feeling in a stadium like that before and i told you that when i was sitting there yeah it was a, a, a game that i haven't really experienced something like that before and we've seen all kinds of zany losses and but it was way outside of what we had expected and just to watch it go down in real time, and I think a lot of you felt the same way was was hard to process, hard to understand. It was a a football regression from week one to week two, from career start to there for AR that is unlike any other that I have paid close attention to. And again, I'm sure that this has occurred before. You have busts in every every sport all over the place, but and not that AR is a bust, but just really, a really bizarre sort of crumbling feeling, not for the far future per se, but just in that moment, in that game, it really got something very different than I expected to get with how the whole thing felt and looked. And for you and I, we value style. We always say that. How the game happens over the results, especially in year one, and this, the style and what happened and how it went down was just really unsettling. Well,
1: it was whiplash. I think for the entire fan base, going from week one to that happening, and I at least the feeling I had was kind of that just sick to your stomach feeling, like a gut punch, not like from the loss, but like almost like a slow, like, I don't know, unraveling is the word we kept using that before our eyes, we saw a player and then a team, like maybe even coaching staff falling apart. And it was just terrible to watch that happen in real time. When you know they're capable of so much more than that, and just see them breaking apart, like what felt like mentally, emotionally, physically, was just tough to watch. It made me not more sad and like, I don't know, feeling like I almost don't want to be in the stadium rather than I'm angry and I can't believe you guys did that. So it was, yeah, it was a weird vibe. But I mean, the energy in the stadium was really strange. Like, no one knew how to felt feel. No one. I knew what was going to happen next. Even when the game was close, it felt like we were down by 100. Very strange game. Um, really interested to hear your thoughts on it.
2: Yeah, and Kentucky, of course, was the the benefactor yet again of yep. another weird game where their offense can't score, but they produce points somehow. And now Mark Stoops, 3-2 and two in his last five games against Florida and two wins in a row. In the swamp. And I've seen enough of that for a lifetime after spending most of my lifetime watching us beat them. (laughs) All right. As always, if you like the content on this show, follow us on social media, sub to our YouTube channel where the film review for this game will be out on late Monday night, early Tuesday morning. So we're back on schedule. Become a patron on Patreon where you too can drop us a dono of really any amount that you would like. We have a variety of amounts that you can choose from, but any amount you like. And a big shout out here, Alan, to our producer, B-Red. He's back and not only is he back getting our show documents ready, putting together content, he's back in the state of Florida. Really? Yeah. Back living in the state of Florida. So welcome back to the best state here. B-Red It's great to have you.
1: B-Red, one of my favorite people that I've never met. Yeah, he was actually in I don't town. I know what he looks like, but I love the guy.
2: I know he was in town this weekend. And for those of you that are new to the podcast, B-Red was a former player at Florida, and he hit us up on social media and said, "I really want to help the pod. I love it." And we said, "No, you can't. There's really nothing you can do." And then he kept hitting up the pod, and I said, "All right, fine. Here, you can do this if you want." And uh, he's become instrumental now yes, to the show. We're super grateful for him. for sure. And yeah, we almost had a, a B-Red meetup, but uh, you know, on game days it's sometimes hard to link up, especially when it rained you know all day long. Also, big shout out to Corey, the commissioner. She uh had her first run as video editor last week. All in all, went really well. And this Good week job. on week two, she's looking forward to having her her big week one to week two improvement. She told me today via text, taking a big step forward there on the film. Looking forward to that. And then as a reminder, the LSU GNFP weekend will be happening Friday night at First Mag. This event is free. I'm going to keep linking this on our social media pages. All you have to do is RSVP for free and say you're going to be there Friday night, October 14th. The day before the LSU game should be a great time coming out with Alan and I and other GNFP listeners and supporters as we discuss all things football, all things Gainesville, really, just whatever and wherever the night takes us. All right, Alan, there was a lot of dono activity. Yeah, let's go. I think when you get a marquee win like that, people get excited. We were excited and we're still excited. Maybe this week we're going to get no donos <laughs> because of the the sadness that exists. Who knows? Either way, let's celebrate what's going on here. Small donos, a level up here from Brandon Blake, from the old small to the new small and giving annually. Thanks, Brandon. And then the artist known as just Brandon comes back right after him with a small dono and he's new. Welcome to the family there, Brandon. Andrew Nielsen coming in new at small. Andrew Newman. Double Andrew. In. Yeah. Uh-huh. New at small. Thanks, guys. Welcome aboard. Marcus Benjamin, a new donor. Jim Slentz. Caleb King coming in with an annual small dono, also new. Mike White.
1: You know, we've been really critical of Mike over the years, and, you know, it's good to know that it's just water on the bridge, and he's excited oh, yeah. to be welcome here. Yeah, welcome in, Mike. <laughs>
2: Extended our, our full welcome to you. Rattler Gator Media coming in with an annual. Uh, Thomas Hubner, and then Tony Sullivan with an annual. These are all new, thanks to you. Welcome aboard, guys. Again, welcome to the family. Then Michael Cook Yarbrough. And then Will Cacklis. And Will is in Happy Valley, which is great. I always love it when people tell us where they're yeah. from. And they tend to be all over the country, but especially when they're in you like know other prominent Valley. college towns. In the medium donos, we have Tommy H. coming in as a new donor, And then Thomas Hashigan coming in new as well. A level up from Charles Greer to an annual medium dono. Then the artist known as Yanni which I love that name, Yanni. My uncle's name is John. He played football at Wheaton, but his friends called him Yanni forever. So whenever I see Yanni, I like that. JB comes in annual dono, medium dono, a level up from Jack uh, Zaludos. And then Mark Fruttrell comes in as well with a medium dono. Large donos, James Newton coming in with an annual large dono. Frank Enfinger coming in, coming in hot with an annual, or just a regular large dono rather. And then a level up, from Jim Di or G Cesario or Di Cesaro. Cesaro. That's my guess. Yeah, Di Cesaro cool name, sounds nice. Way. I like that. Yeah, it's like Di Virgilio. I should be able to pronounce other Come Italian on. names really well. But, you know, you read a lot of names, you get name blocked. Um, and then XXL Donos, because we can't name these after people on the team or former Gators anymore because of, you know, those things. We just have generic names. But John Mark coming in. And then a the level up from. Taylor Lacroix has been a long-time listener and supporter. Thank you, Taylor. And then a Hundo bomb, an annual Hundo bomb from Kevin Conroy Scott. He lives in the UK. Uh, he That's does like a movie star name, yeah, right yeah. He does, and he does all sorts of work actually, kind of in the mainstream world out there. I won't spoil what he does. You can Google him. But Kevin Conroy Scott coming in hot, supporting us from England. It's always great to have your support. And still sitting on the throne is Guy Tumbleson. Uh, Guy, you got to pick your game up here. We took a brutal loss Oof. last week. We need you to put some better mojo. On the team for this week. All right, that was a lot. Yeah, As always, thank you guys so much. That was really cool. Yeah, thank you for supporting us. It means the world to us. We love having you support. If you've never supported us, we love you too. We love all of our listeners, all of our supporters. We are super thankful for each and every one of you.
1: All right, let's talk about those other Donut Legends here: Cooper and Kylie Craig, Jason Walker, the Big Homie, Lil Peyton, Constantine Double O, Alexander Leventhal, Diego Rivera, Bill Hood, Jason, or excuse me, James Newton, Nathan Jeter, Stashmi, Bobby Boucher, Frank Marsilisi. Mike Wechter, Tim Kane, Nicholas Isaac, Mike, Mark Jackson, Tim Hondrick, James Truett, Gus O'Leary, Brad Wilson, Mark Mitchell, Chris Folsom, Dr. Matthew Galloway, Jamie Galliano slash Kyle Angle, Aaron Jeter, Jason Landry, Michael Reeves, Jason Johnson, Zach Sparks, Mark Rubenstein, Tyler, Romery, Craig Scarato. I'll give a shout out to my buddy Grant, who I've known for a little bit and who just realized I'm the same Alan that he listens to on the podcast. I <laughs> hope you're enjoying this one, buddy. All right. Let's get to it. The Gators do lose 26 to 16. We were both wrong on our prediction. I picked 30-17 Gators. You picked 34-20 Gators. Let's go over those keys of the game. Uh, they Most of them did not happen. I wanted to see 250 yards passing from the offense. They only got to 143, of course. And the defense have two turnovers, only had one. You wanted 250, 250, or 300-200
2: from the offense, I don't think they got that. Uh, yeah, don't, we had 279 <laughs> yards of total offense. So how about nowhere near it? Yeah.
1: Whoops. Okay. The D to have four sacks, they did get three, seven pressures, much closer on that. And for them to be under hundred yards rushing 70, which I think starts to tell the story of this game,
2: right? That tells the whole story. Yeah. That right
1: defensively, there. actually the Gators were pretty close to what they, we thought they'd do what they hoped they would do. Definitely played well enough to win the game and a total just, I don't know, complete collapse by the offense. Okay. The question I have starting here is what happened? I mean, we were in the stadium, felt like the Gators were dominating the first half, although that wasn't reflective on the scoreboard. Kentucky had gotten a big play on offense, right? That was well covered, but great catch by that guy. And we have the ball, and I th- I said to both you and stat boy Josh Judy, who is to my left, feels like if the Gators go down and score a touchdown, they'll be in control, and that score will be more reflective of how we feel the two teams are relative to one another. Well, not too long after that, really weird interception followed by a Kentucky touchdown, which probably shouldn't have happened had there not been a really strange roughly in the pastor call. So a lot, a lot of weirdness going on right there in the moment. And then from then, like a different team on the field for the Florida Gators on offense. Let me just go back to rewind a little bit and say what happened.
2: That's the question that we were all asking ourselves. And of course I, I, I poured through the film to get explanations. And I think the entire story of this game comes down to that interception thrown at the end of the second quarter when he, you know, Florida going to convert that third and three. Right. And Richardson rolls out to his right. And we'll talk about Kentucky's game plan later on. But for now, he rolls out to his right. And, you know, their linebacker, number 15, guys played a lot of football there. Solid football player. Mirrors Richardson just like he should. And Richardson still has the throwing lane to make that pass. Uh, but like he was all game, he just was not accurate. He pulls that pass to the inside more than it should have been. And he's rewarded with just the most cruel fate possible because it's a phenomenal interception. I mean, full stretch, knocks it down with one arm, picks it up as it's falling to the ground with his other two, and then proceeds to get tackled by Richardson, the only saving grace. But it seemed like at that point in time, and we're going to unravel the unraveling here, (laughs) that both coach Napier and quarterback broke a little bit. Napier a little bit, AR all the way. And there was no coming back from it, despite what was attempted in the second half. And Florida, of course, did not score a single point after this moment. And Kentucky scored all the rest of the points, despite the fact that Florida was in the game all the way there. But some games have plays where things just don't work out well. You know, I I went back to last year, Georgia, on this very podcast. It was ugly. We got, you know, abused by Georgia. But I felt fine. I felt like A.R. made the right reads. You know, he had one really bad throw, but it was really still a great play. By a linebacker who's now in the NFL. And uh, all in all, like it was fine. Kind of what you expected. It was not surprising, right? To a certain degree. This game was just shocking, as we mentioned. Alarming. And disappointing. And also alarming because of how poorly Florida's offense played. How out of character they played. Um, you talk about variance. We talk about variance a lot on this podcast. What's your ceiling? What's your floor? What's your expected variance? Well, this was more than two standard deviations away from the mean. This was like an unbelievably negative outlier result. And if AR's ceiling is the moon, his floor is now like sub level ten, which is which is concerning. Which we and, didn't think and that that was did not possible. think that was possible, right? We knew we had a wide range. We talked about this all last year. You play the ceiling guy. He's going to have erratic games, even this year. We talked about him young. We talked about he has to pass the test of being able to complete passes against man defense, of being able to complete passes against loaded boxes when they're daring him to pass. We said this coming into this week, but nothing on film, nothing on film suggested a regression of this level. Nothing suggested a mental break like this, where he admitted after the game, of course, that he lost confidence. I mean, what happened here was the most important position In all of sport, which is the quarterback, to quote an original Top Gun line, just lost the edge and turned in his wings in the middle of the game. And despite what the coach is trying to do, bring him back, bring him back from the edge, he could not. He could not get him back. And that's what happened. And that's why quarterback is the most important position. If that's a receiver or a D lineman or a safety, whatever, fine, you can survive that. You can sub him out. But you have the heart and soul of your team having a confidence break, turning in his wings. Where do you go from there? And Florida had no answers for that.
1: Yeah, it was very strange watching it in real time and then watching back a little bit. You knowing the outcome is it's like watching a horror movie where you know what's gonna happen. There's no suspense. It's it's just terrible to watch it unfold. And you can't help but feel bad for the guy. And Look, I, I'm still a big fan of Anthony Richardson, even as a person, like, you know, some of the stories that came out for him after the game and how he handled himself. And. But, yeah, the, these types of things are hard to get over and are some some people never get over them, like a major league pitcher who gets the yips and can't throw a strike and has to leave baseball. I, I'm not suggesting that's what's going to happen with AR, but but these are serious things that are that happen to people. And that's what it wasn't like, okay, we weren't good enough. Or we didn't have the plays or whatever it was, man, we just fell apart. And let me move on to Kentucky for a minute because I don't know why this, this just makes me feel frustrated watching the reaction to like, wow, Kentucky's tough. They're, they're good. Now Kentucky's a fine football team, but from my estimation, they're thoroughly mediocre by SEC standards. That there's nothing Kentucky did that was all that great. This is the story of this game was Florida falling apart. And Florida is actually probably two touchdowns better than them. That that score prediction was probably pretty close to what actually is true. If Florida just doesn't shoot itself in the foot multiple times, they win fairly easily. And I don't think Kentucky has the horses to even approach them. And now Kentucky comes out of this game looking great. I, I Again, I think they're a fine football team, but... The narrative that they've all of a sudden ascended and now they're going to be one of the great teams. I, again, this could be a wild year. There's wild stuff happening on Saturday, but my takeaway is that Kentucky's fairly mediocre.
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. And I've seen a lot of people say things like, hey, look, Billy had to start against two top 15 teams and Kentucky's an excellent football team. And that's just factually wrong. This year's Kentucky team is not an excellent football team. And if you want the proof, it's pretty simple. You've had what I said earlier was the biggest week one to week two, the biggest career regression in one game as far as what you expect from a guy, what you think you might get, what his variance is, that I have seen at an up-close level. Again, I'm not going to name the Ryan Leafs in the NFL and things like that, right? But that I have seen at this level where a guy just does way different than what you think. And Florida was down with five minutes left in the game by one touchdown with a quarterback who mentally was gone who couldn't complete easy passes, who gave Kentucky free point, just threw threw one of the most inexplicably silly far side of the field hitch routes to a receiver that's not even running that in Naquan Wright for a a layup seven-point touchdown. And Florida was still in the football game, Alan. So if you think Kentucky's a top 10 team, you tell me how many top 10 teams are going to play a team that their quarterback is no longer capable of playing the position and is not going to run them out of the building. But they didn't. They did everything but that. They're not a very good football team. Not this year. We talked about that. And they're not bad. They're no, just they're, No, they're, they're a good. middle line SEC team, which, which to Mark Stoop's credit, is an excellent result for Kentucky. So this right. is taking nothing away from them. But if, if you're a fan and you're hearing your friends say that Kentucky is an excellent team, that's just factually not true. This is a, a middle of the line SEC team. At least team. right now. They're not as talented as Florida. Their offensive line is a sieve. They're missing their best running back and their two other backups. They don't have any anybody notable at wide receiver. They don't have a single tight end worth mentioning. Their defense had to replace three defensive linemen, two starting corners. They have two excellent linebackers, which we talked about. Excellent linebackers. And they showed up have on Saturday. SEC for talent sure. level guys, but mid level SEC talented level guys. We chronicled the difference between Florida's talent and their talent, right? Florida played at home, they play on the road. Again, you can create all this if you want. This was self inflicted. Florida beat themselves. Kentucky tried to beat themselves. And Florida said, hold my beer. I'm going to show you how we do this. And and that's the most hurtful part about this, right? If you get beat like a drum by Georgia or Bama, you know, whatever. The team's more talented than us. They got better players than we do. They played better than we do. Life goes on. But this is a hurtful loss to an opponent that Florida is now tending to play its worst games against. But most importantly, as we break this down, Alan, on film, Kentucky did everything on defense Florida would have absolutely expected them to do. There wasn't a single surprising thing they did outside of how they pressured Richardson with blitzes. But that was a minor thing to adjust to. And Florida's game plan early on in the game was exactly right. They expected Kentucky to do what they did. And that's what hurts the most is if Kentucky had come out and put on film, man, what a great game plan. They really did something surprising. Or their guys are better than we thought they were. Right. And again, they did good things on film. Don't get me wrong. But the bottom line was it wasn't a curveball. It's what Florida practiced for all week long. It's what they expected from the beginning. And when you can't beat an opponent in your home stadium that you are better than with even an average performance, that hurts bad. And when that, when your quarterback happens to be the one who regresses that way, that hurts bad. And it hurts even worse because A.R. is seemingly such a great guy. And Alan, to your point, I think where this is going to go with A.R. is to an uncomfortable place for all of us. I don't know what this means for the future of A.R., I can't tell you whether it's a blip on the radar, it's an anomaly or it's something that sticks with him. But I can tell you to what you said, Alan, you should take very seriously a loss of confidence for an athlete. Quarterbacks have to have thick, thick skin. That's the role of being a quarterback. Look, I watched the NFL on Sunday. You get some of these and Joe Burrow's in the Super Bowl last year. He played phenomenal. He threw four interceptions in that game and lost a fumble. They still should have won if they didn't have some issues in the kicking game. But he played horrible. Does that mean Joe Burrow sucks now this year and he's trash? No, of course not, right? It's one game. But we have a lot of data on Joe Burrow. We don't have a lot of data on AR. And Joe Burrow is mentally rock solid, super tough. We've seen that all throughout his career, right? He never had a moment where he made a few bad passes and that's it. And that's evidence of that game yesterday. Guy's having the worst passes of his life. Comes back, brings him back, gets him in the lead. With AR, for him to basically lose confidence from missing some throws early that snowballed so hard that he was just sort of done is a problem and billy's got a big challenge on his hands to rebuild that confidence because that is a significant level of mental fragility at a position that you cannot be mentally fragile at you cannot be mentally fragile at that and this wasn't a
1: game where man made some bad reads threw some picks just didn't play well wasn't accurate and it's like yeah i just didn't play well today. Maybe he was sick. You know, who knows? This was like you could tell something was going on with him physically, emotionally, mentally, maybe all of the above that he just wasn't right. And yeah, I mean, he has a chance to rebound and maybe he's 10 years in NFL career and be like, man, remember that really weird game he had against Kentucky? Man, that was crazy. Or this was the this is the point from
2: which you start to begin to tell his story. So, yeah. And if you're thinking, Hey, listen, James and Allen, guys have really bad football games all the time. We can chronicle a bunch of college guys who have had terrible games. That's all true, but not very many of them have come out as far as we know in the post game and basically said, and this is a great thing about AR, right? Is that he'll, he'll tell you what he thinks. And he's, he's very mature in that way. Essentially. I made some bad throws. It snowballed and I lost confidence. I let my team down to let the fans down, you know, but I lost confidence and it snowballed. But the thing is on film, it's clear that happens early and Florida's winning and it's happening. That's not good, right? This is football. You're the quarterback. You're going to throw picks. You're going to make dumb decisions. You're going to make mistakes. You are winning the football game at home and you break mentally and you never come back. And I'm not dogging him for this. I'm just stating the reality that that is that is the hardest thing here to get a feel for. What happens against Tennessee on the road if things don't go the way we want them to go? What can Billy Napier expect from Anthony Richardson if the moment gets big again? What can Richardson expect from himself if the moment is there again? Now, you hope that obviously you can overcome all these things. You can overcome these mental hurdles, but we just don't know now. There's a new you know, variable. process and variable, right? There's a new variable in this in this algorithm that is AR that wasn't there before. No one questioned his confidence before. He seemed like a very confident guy. And I'll put the bow on the AR story before we break it down here in a little bit, Alan, with this. When he came out on play one, you were probably like Alan and I. Oh, AR, AR's on the field, we're in great hands. This guy's gonna make plays, gonna tear him up. By the second half, you were probably thinking, Oh my goodness, AR is gonna throw the football. Something horrible is gonna happen. That's an unbelievable free fall. From where you felt about him to where he made you feel about him in one game, with the likes of which I just haven't seen. Now, with Felipe Franks and guys like that, Treon Harris, you just knew that you were going to get some bad stuff. It wasn't great. But with AR, he's electric, he's your playmaker. You trust the guy. He generally makes good decisions. He feels like he's in control. Even if things aren't working really well, he's he's quick to trust himself. So, you know, we could talk about it forever, but that I think is the storyline we're focusing really heavily on, and that's what is really hard to take in here is this is not just an X's and O's thing. It's not just a bad game. You are now dealing with the psyche of your starting quarterback who is worth three to four wins to your team. Like we talked about on the high end, but now shockingly actually costs your team a win against Kentucky. And that is the narrative Alan, that none of us would have believed never in a million years. What I have said, AR is going to actually outright cost Florida a football game. But he did. And I think there's narratives where if Miller is healthy, heck, if Ingalls in there, Florida might win that football game. Probably do. That's where we're at. And that's a real comment. That's real life. It's a real talk. That's what's so incredible about what happened on Saturday.
1: Yeah, that's a big flip. And again, not that we're riding the guy off by any means. But he's got a new challenge now that he probably hasn't faced in his career. And so how does he respond? I want you started to mention this. One thing I super appreciate is both Richardson and Napier taking accountability and saying, yeah, I I need to do better. Not like no caveats, no like shade at anybody else. Now, whether that's, you know, certainly there's more blame to go around than just two guys, I'm sure. But not everyone played perfectly or coached perfectly besides them. But they're the faces of the program and they were completely accountable and humble in the process. And I think if you're going to get anywhere, you have to start from there. So that was really encouraging for me that they weren't, that they diagnosed the problem correctly. That wasn't like, I don't know, man, we're pretty good. That was, you know, (laughs) what kills about Mullen, whether he was being disingenuous or not. It was like, well, we rushed, we had more yards than them. Right. So I love that from them. I really appreciate that about them as men, the way they handled that situation. And again, they can totally rebound from this. It's not a given, but it's also not there; they're done and we've written the story on them.
2: Yeah, and let's hope that's the case. You know, I don't want you to think, oh, man, James and Alan sound like they're ringing the alarm bell. I'm actually not sounding the alarm. This is just one data point. But that's it's true. a surprising data point, and you should take it seriously. I think the people that are dismissing this data point as no big deal are wrong. That's wrong. This is a surprising data point, and you must take surprising data points very seriously. Because that's not what was expected. You have to rethink your system, rethink your process. How do I handle this? How do I prepare for this? If it happens again, it causes you to reorient yourself. And that's what I'm doing now with AR. I'm just taking the data point, adding it to the bottom level of variance, and now adding in more randomness for how Florida's offense is going to perform, how Billy's going to handle it, and saying at the same point in time, I have no idea what's going to happen. Hopefully, he bounces back, has a great you know season of ups and downs because every quarterback will. He's still inexperienced. He's still young. And you could point to plenty of guys like a Josh Allen or other guys like that that obviously learned how to use their athleticism and how to get better and better as years have gone on. Um, All those things can be true, and and we don't know. So take that away. I do not know. I am not saying this is the end for AR. His ceiling remains as high as it ever was. Something I said two years ago when we first saw him throw the football in the Oklahoma game was this guy's ceiling is probably as high as it could be. We have no idea what his floor is. And we ultimately have no idea if his consistency level is high enough to justify where he could be, but he's the tools, the talent, everything he has is to the moon. None of that has changed.
1: Yeah. And I, you know, we do have to account for the fact that he'd probably never been in the spotlight and the kind of pressure that was on him this week. And again, I, I don't love to just totally armchair psychoanalyst him, but here's the factors. I mean, he was on the cover of like every article People are talking about as a potential number one overall pick and that and that wasn't crazy. That was like, OK, if this guy fulfills his p- potential, that is his potential. Right. So it's not that wasn't just crazy. He was getting compared to Cam Newton, Vince Young. And there's some people who bristled out that because he hadn't played. But no one's saying he's going to be those guys. But here's his comps. If he gets there, there's a ton of scouts in the stands, the fans, the media. Everybody's looking at him. All eyes are on him in a way they I'm sure, never experienced before in his life. He was a high-profile recruit, but not a mega recruit. And coming off that success, I don't know what this week was like for him and how that affected him. So that has to be put into the equation. Now, that's, that's neither like necessarily good or bad, but something that's going to come with the role if he's going to be successful here and how he handles that moving forward would be important as well.
2: Yeah, for sure. And this is kind of a scenario where you wish modern college football no longer has this. Right. But you wish you had a a senior quarterback on the roster that's seen a lot. that's kind of played some backup and it's played this played when guys were hurt and is able to teach you. Hey, look, that's what it's all about. This is how it happens. It's okay, Stay strong. But there is nobody for him to look to. He's competing with a guy in Jack Miller who wants to take his job. He's got a walk on in Kyle Engel. He's got Kitna as a true project. There's just nobody there. There's no one for him to, you know, put an arm around him and say, hey, look, it's fine. This happens. It happened to me. Here's what happened to me, right? You don't have that, and that's harder. That's the job Billy has to play. Billy's going to play that role for him. Uh, But but obviously, you know, a big moment here, I think, in this season, that, again, if you saw this coming, congratulations. You really saw something I think no one else saw coming at this level. Florida could have lost that game in a lot of ways, but – beforehand, if you had pulled the audience uh, and said Richardson was going to be the sole reason why Florida lost this game, and he was going to mentally doubt himself to a point to where he could no longer make basic throws, I just refuse to believe anybody would have said that. And if you think you would have said that, you're using hindsight to let that influence you. And so that is where we are. That's what happened in this game. And again, it could just be one game and life goes on, right? Aaron Rodgers yesterday had a horrific game against the Vikings. Last last year, he came out in week one and got obliterated and then had a phenomenal season yeah, and the basically was the MVP and, and won the NFC. Okay, But we have a lot of data on Aaron Rodgers. So the story on AR is being written. We're going to follow it closely. We're going to see what happens. And now, of course, we're going to turn our attention to explaining what actually happened on film, what Kentucky did, what Florida tried to do, and kind of give you the, the, the breakdown of how it all went down. But we spent a lot of time up top to really talk about that This is going to be now the new storyline for the season, which is what does this bounce back look like? And look, as Americans, we love the comeback story, right? There's nothing better than the humility that AR is now experiencing. This will make him a better quarterback and a better person in the long run, right? This is ultimately better for his ceiling to have this moment right now. And I'm going to go ahead and say that, turning on the silver lining this will be better for him. He will know what it was like to be at this point. He will know how to relate to others when things go really tough for them. He will no longer believe his own press clippings, which I don't even know that he was, but he's not going to believe what people say about him. He's not going to trust them when they annoy him. He's going to work hard. He's going to develop skills to make sure that he has enough skills this won't happen again. Improve your accuracy. Yeah, Stick Yeah, that's if forward. he goes Stick with the right plan, way. right? Yeah, and that's, that's the silver lining, though, is that adversity can make you a better player. Look at any Hall of Famer. They had a lot of adversity at some point in time, and they had to decide will this break me? Am I tapping out? Is this too much for me? Or am I going to learn from this and get better? And that's what you you want to have these watershed moments. And this is the right time to have it in a year one of Billy Napier's tenure where this was never going to be a championship year anyway. Florida did have a huge chance to build a lot of early momentum, which is sad we didn't, but this was not going to be a season of winning something. This can now be a season about getting ar and this football team to where it needs to get to ultimately and we look at this as an anomaly that's the hope is that this game is a blip on the radar a total anomaly like you mentioned just a story we tell later uh about that's oh, you know interesting spot for florida but man we really rebounded really well
1: yeah we wanted to spend a lot of time up there because i felt like that was the story of the game not the x's and o's not the strategy as much as the human element of the game which is often overlooked because it's harder to quantify but when it's so obvious on the field it was worth our time Spinning there. Okay, let's talk about the offense, though. Here's some stats for you. 279 yards of offense, 143 rushing, 136 passing. So uh, not terrible 4.5 yards per rush, but really the story of the game. Those two interceptions, of course, 4 of 16 on third down. Well, 4 of 16 on yeah. third down is unreal. AR, 14 of 35, 143 yards. Only six carries, four rushes. Montreal Johnson, 62 yards. Etienne, 46 yards on nine carries. Naquan Wright, eight carries, 24 yards. So only one sack, one of three on fourth down, and one of one in the red zone. So, yeah, the numbers don't I obviously like, tell the whole story. Um, and it was interesting, the game plan. Kentucky did what you thought they were going to do, right? They were like, all right, we're going to load it up, and we're going to make you try to beat us in a certain way. And at the beginning of the game, the game plan seemed to be working in theory, Florida was attacking with the pass, was having some success, right? Was but barely missing, missing Pearsall on one of those in-breaking routes. Oh man, if he catches that, that's a huge gain. Oh, I just missed it. uh oh, oh, man, there's a drop there. Oh, we're we're close. I was even sitting out Texas, like we're gonna break this game open if we get this dialed in. But it no longer was working, and really not even attempted later on. What was the major breakdown from the beginning of that point to the end schematically? Where did where did Florida go?
2: Well, I think Florida now, really, two games in a row, as as we talked about against Utah and now against Kentucky, has really struggled to consistently pass the football. And against Kentucky, it struggled to do so, despite the fact that Kentucky was playing eight men in the box a lot. With sa- a lot of times, safety's... Two safeties like eight yards away from the line of scrimmage. Eight yards away from the line of scrimmage. Zero. I mean, I mean zero respect. And so that's you know to me that's the that's the Emory plan that we chronicled last year extensively. Teams against Emory, that's what they did. They had no respect for his passing. They loaded the box. They'd play man or they'd play cover three, basic zone, but they would not commit any extra defenders to the pass. And they would say, "Beat me with the pass consistently. Otherwise, I'm going to make sure you cannot run." And that's what Florida had to have expected. Kentucky was going to do. Kentucky still played their traditional static zone defenses, which they tell you they're going to play ahead of time, which Kyle Trask shredded to pieces, which I love talking about. Yes. That he was going to do it. You knew he was going to do it and he did it. And that's what Mark Stoops does, but he does rely on stellar linebacker play. And that's something Florida has been deficient in now for years. It was on display for Kentucky. And I thought that made the biggest difference in the game for them was their linebackers were all over the field. They were really causing problems for Florida. They were not allowing Florida to get anything really easy like they wanted. And therefore Florida needed to be able to complete intermediate passes because in general, Kentucky is going to tell their safety to stay way up top. They're not going to let you complete a lot of passes above them. They played a whole lot of cover three. And when they played man, it was in, you know, fourth down and three or third down and three situations when they probably knew a scared team like Florida to pass was not going to take a shot deep. So, Kentucky did everything you thought they were going to do. And then obviously as the throws were missed, things got worse. Receivers were open. If you were at the game and you thought they were open, you're watching on TV. They were open early on. We should have had many chunk plays in the passing game. We basically had none. And that does two things. One, it makes Florida feel like, oh man, this feels bad. We can't complete these passes. And two, it it, it emboldened Kentucky. Like we can be even more aggressive And I thought that's largely, Alan, what led to the storyline of the game is Kentucky hyper aggressive early on, then tactically aggressive later on. Then as the game was close at 16-16, Mark Stoops went full Mark Stoops and started rushing only three guys, which was to a huge advantage of Florida. But by then, Richardson was so mentally broken that he couldn't do things he does in his sleep. He kills that kind of defense normally, and he couldn't do it. But Kentucky had eased off the plan that was working because they were like, hey, you know, let's keep stuff in front of us. He's maybe his own worst enemy right now, which wound up being true. And that was the most painful thing of all. True. is it wasn't a consistent application of the strategy that worked. It was anything they did. Anything they did on pass defense worked. And that's why I said it was the most significant regression, a colossal collapse, is there was no back-end defense they played that didn't eat him up, which is unfathomable. And very simply put, Alan and, I, and I, I talk about this on the film breakdown, the first quarter, his, his footwork, his fundamentals, his reading is timely. It was fine. He was a little hyped up, again, like he was against Utah. He was a little too excited early on. He was telling himself to calm down. But everything was there. By the end of the game, by the fourth quarter, his footwork went to hell in a handbasket. He was no longer squaring his shoulders to any throws. He stopped reading high to low. He stopped reading the safety. He stopped moving linebackers. He started throwing to his first read, pre-snap, premeditated. This is stuff he's never done on film. Never. Not a single snap was he doing these things, and he did it on every snap for the past 10 or 12. That is a total loss of confidence at every level. All your fundamentals break down. You're mentally unsure of what you're doing, and it's on display. And that's what happened in the game. And all that happened, again, to your point, all of that happened with Kentucky running a defense that we knew they were going to run. Now, they ran it well. Their linebackers played very, very well. They stopped us running the football, which we had a humongous advantage on. Credit to them for that. But these are throws that AR makes all the time. They're not complicated. If he makes even half of them, half of those throws early on, to your point now, and he probably win this game 30-something to 20, if not more. But we made almost none of them. In fact, he never completed two balls in a row the entire game. Two solid passes in a row were never completed. He never got in a rhythm, couldn't get it going. Um, And then I think as the game went on, I think Napier tried to training wheels him more, tried to give him even simpler stuff. And I think that really backfired. I think if Napier could have a do-over, he would have stuck with what he knew was going to be there and just been more aggressive attacking those back-end defenses. But instead, it almost became very high school-ish. Throw it to this guy. Throw it to that guy. And that, I think, may have hurt AR even more, if that's possible. But I understand Napier's, what do I do with this guy? The lights are off. And he tried to find ways. And on film, we just sort of simplified, simplified, simplified to the point to where we were, again, we were a high school football team that were incapable of completing the most basic routes. I
1: didn't praise them, but they are capable of stopping that.
2: Oh, for sure. And obviously, they were capable of, of shutting us down. They did. You know, the offense barely scored. And as you said, the linebackers made plays
1: in situations that kept the game close early on, where... There's a moment where early on, on a third down, spread away out, ran Richardson on a draw,
2: and he gets stopped. Which is a, actually a really good play call. Yeah. At the time, you're thinking, "What are you doing?" It's third and five in the red zone, but that would have been a touchdown probably. Yeah. And just a just a phenomenal, phenomenal job by number ten of Kentucky, reading, reacting, scraping across the formation, beating Gouraj to the block, and then tackling Ar, which was high level stuff. And that happens. Sometimes you have the right play call. Guy makes a great play. Yeah. And that's what great linebacking can do is it can save you and it saved them at multiple big points. And those are important. That's like, you know, now I are, it just snowballs, right? Nothing is working, even though that play was the right play call.
1: And there was a distinct shift in the second half. As you said that we were not running the same stuff we were running at the beginning. We completely abandoned that game plan when it was clear that we're not capable. Let's try something else. Now, again, maybe you just go, screw it. This is what they're making us do this is going to be the most successful, but I don't, I don't know that I would have said you have to do that either. So there wasn't a lot of good options. And here's the other issue that haven't really talked about. I mean, they, they're not talking about AR being hurt. There was a moment early on in the game where he comes up limping, but the other reality is here. We have, there's nobody behind him. Now we've talked about how Kyle Ingall might be fun. Um, Fun's the right word, but he's yeah. not a guy that
2: you're thinking I'm going to insert him into the game confidently. Yes, never played before, right? Jack Miller's not there. That's the guy you would yes. confidently insert into the game.
1: Right, or just if we feel like we can't really lean on Anthony Richardson's running the ball, which Kentucky was not inviting us to do, is not there. That was not the, the choice you'd make tactically, but this guy's so electric. Let's just try and do that. Well, if you lose him, there, are, there really is no option B that seems remotely palatable. So that was also the staff playing a little bit left-handed there that they didn't have this seemingly great option because of what's behind Richardson. Now, again, that might just be what they have to turn to. And again, if they're inviting him to run, you just got to let him run probably. But this is not a game where that was the thing that was the most obvious answer anyway.
2: No, and speaking of the injury, you know, a lot was made of this. On film, after that play, he's running around fine. Yeah. The very third and five play you mentioned. But maybe makes, that spooks him where he comes up limping. Sure. He makes a super hard cut, though, on that third and five when he gets tackled. I mean, a, a full on plant cut. His foot slips out. He's, you know, he, he's sprinting around, rolling out fine. I mean, I just don't see any real evidence of that being a So, not that it would mess thing. him up, that it might mess up the
1: coaching staff because they see that and they go. Sure.
2: And that's, that's what I was going to say. That's the case. So, so, I think the people saying that he was hurt and that's why he struggled to play well, I'm not going to buy that. Some injuries will do that that was not an injury that was significant enough to mess him up. I I saw no evidence of that to have the coaching staff say, Ooh, we took a hit already. What do we do then? That obviously is a real, a real thought, especially given where we are, um, you know, in, in this situation. So I think all in all for the offense, obviously, Alan, it was a significant regression from week one to week two. And week one to week two is generally when you make the, the biggest performance boost. You have film on yourself against a real opponent. You gain confidence from a win. You know, you really get better. We didn't get better. And then we talked about the first pick that he threw. And then I want to talk about a moment in the game that I thought in the stands was, was really significant. And that's Florida gets the ball back after Kentucky scores. Florida's up 16-13. There's a minute and 21 seconds left. And Florida elects to basically run the clock out. Now, you can defend this. I'm going to start with the defense of this. And the defense of this is your quarterback is mentally at a bad place. You now know this. You see this. You're winning the game. You're at home take it in the locker room, Kentucky gets the ball back, play defense and reset in the second half, sort of, you know, whisper to him, you're fine, get going. That's perfectly reasonable. What I'm, what I'm about to say here is not, is not like something you have to do. It's something I would have done, but I want to ask you the question because we talked about it. You have two choices at that point in time. If you with a minute and 21 seconds left are, are saying to yourself, you're not confident in your quarterback running your offense in this game. You are now making a short-term tactical decision to win the game. You are, period. No matter what you think you're doing. So if you're doing that, you have to coach the game to win that game. And there's a big statement. If you've lost confidence in your quarterback, you have to be thinking, and I don't know this, I'm not a practice. I've seen two practices with Engle and the guy throws the ball well, right? But perhaps if it were me, I would have seriously thought after halftime. I'm going to give AR a series, and if he's struggling, I'm going to give Ingle one. I'm going to sit him out for a second. I need him to just refocus, right? Recalibrate. You let Ingle go in and do some stuff, whatever. But what I want to say here is if you're taking the long term view, and this is, hey, we're not going to win anything this year anyway. There's a minute and 21 seconds left. My quarterback just threw a bad pick. What's the old saying, Alan? If you fall off the horse, you got to get back on it. With a minute and 21 seconds left and two timeouts at home against a Kentucky team that you shouldn't have a ton of respect for, that you've struggled against. But you've also had open receivers against to shut it down and go into halftime to me sent an an unbelievably clear message to everyone there, including Kentucky. We're afraid of you. We don't trust our quarterback anymore. This is going to be a long game. I hated it because, again, if I'm the long run view, the AR is my guy and he's the high ceiling guy, which he is. I'm of that opinion. You you put him back out there. Listen, I believe in you. You got to bounce back now. It's part of quarterbacking. Shake it off and get out there. We didn't do it, and again, it's fine to take the other side, like I said, but to me, it became a mixture throughout the rest of the game of short-term tactical trying to win and then also sticking with your long-term guy, but that doesn't work. You kind of got to be one or the other, I think, in that situation. If you're going to go short-term tactical to win, you've got to be able to do some different stuff to try to win rather than sort of trying to soothe, say, your quarterback. That's more of a long-term scenario. So I thought that moment was significant. Yeah, it definitely was
1: telling because it told us what they were going to do the rest of the game for the most part, that they were going to go more conservative rather than more aggressive. And, yeah, I can't say I blame them if they understood that this is not going to go well, if they already knew that. Right. And putting them in that situation again was not going to be helpful. Again, maybe that's the right tactic. That is the path they chose was we're going to simplify, simplify, get more and more and more conservative as the game went on.
2: Which is, again, entirely reasonable. But I think for me, if you fall off the horse, get back on the horse, son. Get riding again. I believe in you. You might fall off again. That's fine. I'm going to keep believing in you. You're my guy. But that did lead to what we said. That that was that was the, the signal, the smoke signal. We're going to be more conservative. We're going to try to keep this simple. We're going to try to steal a win and get to next week. And that's perfectly reasonable. Unfortunately, with the benefit of hindsight, that did not work. And the wheels just fell off further. Right. We got
1: Kentucky to punt. At the beginning of the second half. Seemed like the game was there for the taking
2: again. Yeah, sure. We still had a lead. 16-13 yep. at that point in time.
1: All right. Let me just shift gears and talk about some individual players. Um, first let's talk about maybe a a notable injury. Michael Tarkin, who's, you know, performed fairly admirably at right yeah, tackle, he's goes down solid. in the first quarter. Austin Barber comes in, who we hadn't really talked about, but who the staff has, you know, name-checked quite a few times. How do you think the offensive line? performed in his absence.
2: It was hard to find like a significant difference. Barber did well, and this is a nice sign of the offensive line. He did well. He didn't have any mental mistakes. Uh, He was, you know, by all accounts fine. I think whether it was Tarquin or Barber, the real issue was that Kentucky was willing to bring at least six, seven or eight guys on many, many snaps. And schematically they had a really nice strategy where they were going to consistently bring a linebacker and a safety or basically two players when they thought there was a chance that AR may be escaping to his right. And they just blitzed him, just sent him to the point to where there are multiple plays where Florida could have run like a basic wide receiver screen to the side where they blitz and probably scored a touchdown. And I showed this on the film review, but they gambled knowing that, Hey, if the play's not going to that side, then AR has got at one guy, maybe two guys to throw to, and we're going to take away his running to the right because I think they correctly believed he wants to run to the right, like any right-handed quarterback. So I thought that was a really nice job by them schematically. And what that meant was the offensive line, Allen, was often themselves, there's five guys in the O-line dealing with eight, seven or eight-man scenarios. And Kentucky was, 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 you know, they'll run simulated pressures. They're one creepers. They did a nice job passing stuff off. You know, Kentucky wasn't getting through all that often unless they really brought the house, in which case you're going to get through. I saw a lot of comments, Florida saying, oh, man, he had no time. Well, if you're going to bring eight guys and play pass coverage with three, you're going to get through. Like literally guaranteed to get through. Florida's not going to have enough guys to block you. And Kentucky did that on several occasions and they got through. So, again, their game plan worked. I, I We've kind of downplayed Kentucky a lot in this game. Other teams would not have taken that strategy. So you have to give them credit for taking what we as Florida fans felt like was fairly obvious because of what we saw against Utah. But other teams wouldn't have done it, and they did it. And we paid the ultimate price for that schematically. Secondarily, why did AR not run a lot? Let's say we wanted to run him more. We would have been forcing it. They committed a player to the edge every single play to the point to where if we handed it off, that guy was still standing on the edge shadowing Richardson. They spied Richardson on every single pass play a linebacker was assigned to spy him they totally took all of their chips and put it on the you are not going to run bingo card and it worked he didn't run right now maybe you find more creative ways to have him run if you're an apier maybe that's a failure for you not to do it but hats off dick Kentucky for setting up a game plan that was entirely built upon ar not running them succeeding in that a, are not passing well, something I think he was confident he could have done, then losing his confidence. And so that scheme played well into that. You better believe every single football team in America that plays Florida is going to use that scheme. And now this is the beauty of sports down. We've talked about it every year on the podcast. Opponents are going to try things to see if they work against you. When they work, they're going to keep doing it. And that's the question they ask of you. The question is, can you beat this, Anthony Richardson? And if you cannot, then Anthony Richardson's career as a quarterback will never go further than where it is. That's how sports works. If you can... You overcome it, and they find a new way to challenge you. And this is kind of the process. And if you can get high enough, you're a pro, right? So this is step one in his development. Can he beat this? And he couldn't on this day, obviously, as we've chronicled. But again, credit to Kentucky, good game plan, smart game plan. They really affected Florida with this. And they basically did not allow Florida to do what they did best against Utah, which was run the football because it's hard to run against an eight-man front. And Florida was still pretty successful. Four and a half yards per carry, despite the fact that Kentucky is loaded up against your run, is a testament to how good the O-line was. So that's a circle back to answer the question. The O-line did a nice job. They also had individual moments where they unfortunately got beat. And you can think of one near the end when Florida is going to run the ball on third and five. And again, it looks suspect, like Naquan Wright loses three yards and you're like two yards, like, oh my gosh, what a terrible play call. It's actually a good play call. But unfortunately, Kingsley, who's been owning people on film, just got cast aside like a little child by their nose tackle. Number zero is a young guy, big, huge, young dude. Just launched him out of the way and made a heroic individual play. If he doesn't make that play and Kingsley gets the block, it's a first down pickup and it's first down and 10 for Florida. So in live time, that was like a bad play call. In real time, it was a good play call. It was a light box, Kentucky expected pass, but you have a one-on-one win. A one-on-one win nose tackle versus center. That's a good football play. And Kentucky made almost all of those big plays after the AR interception. That's the one that started it. And Florida made basically none on the offensive side. And that, I think, largely explained what happened in the game. Is just every high leverage moment, Florida couldn't complete the pass. They couldn't get the block. And it wasn't just AR. It was mainly him, but it wasn't just AR. But it was, you know, receiver couldn't help him out with a catch, right? We had a dropped pass from Xavier Henderson on a first down, right through his hands. It just, it just nothing could happen. Ricky Paracel slides out of his break, and the ball's behind him, and he he probably catches that ball a lot of times. He doesn't catch it, and so we just nothing could happen. No one could help the quarterback out, and that was the most unfortunate thing about it. It was just a symphony of 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 mistakes occurring at the exact wrong time. Couldn't get anything going.
1: Yeah, Florida needed something to happen, a playmaker on offense, which there's not a lot of them who's going to be really dynamic and other than Richardson, who just was himself. And yeah. And as you said, I think you said it well, Kentucky was doing a good job at saying, we're not going to let you do what you want to do very often. And to do that, you're going to have to play really clean and perfect. We weren't always at that and lost the game, lost a close game because of it. Uh, I do want to highlight two running backs here. Uh, Montreal Johnson and I'm always tempted to call him Travis ATN. I know it's Etienne. so good. Trevor Burrus. So yeah, it's, I've already done it this season. Yeah. So I feel good. Um who look great. great. Who have really taken the system system. ETN on that touchdown run slices a dude in half and is exactly what you want to see from him. He's gonna be really stellar throughout his career. I mean, just getting started here, obviously, and what a I don't, revelation is too strong a word, but he's been superb through two games.
2: Yeah, he's been fantastic on film, and it's very clear that you know that that seven and two, Montrell and and obviously Etienne are are the best running backs, and that you know Naquan Wright is not there. Uh, and you said it well, Alan, at the game. Obviously, Naquan's best skill was was being a, a receiver, and they used him a lot in this game at that. In fact, the pick six came on him being lined up as a wide receiver. And he's sort of just running a a go route. And again, Richardson inexplicably throws a far hash hitch route where the corner's sitting on it. But Naquan was used in the passing game a lot. When Florida wanted to go empty, he's in there. So they're trying to find ways to utilize him in that regard. Uh, But they're not finding ways to get him the ball in that set with the same success, of course, that Dan Mullen did. And so I think as a pure running back, through two games, I've seen enough film to know that both Montreal and Etienne are just better running backs in this scheme. They're more explosive, they break more tackles, have a better feel for it, and that Etienne is, Etienne is the, the true talent. Montreal's rock solid, does everything right, really good player. But Etienne is going to be Montreal plus more. And he already is. And he's a guy who needs more carries. And if AR is going to go down a path of having some issues in games where he's going to be volatile with his performance, it's more important to have a guy who can, who can make a hero play to help your quarterback out. And I would expect to see both ETN and Montrell's carries increase more and more as Naquan shrink. Um, and it has to be that way. Again, the film, I think, is demanding that that's the case. And if you want to win... You have to make hard decisions, and that's telling your team, look, I'm going to play the best guys.
1: Yeah, and by all accounts, Nickwon is super well-respected in the locker room, great dude, a leader, and that's why he's continuing to get reps, I think, as he has. And again, it's not just flexing him out, because often that's a strategic move to you know, make the other team put a corner on him and have a linebacker on somebody else. But his best, I think, moments are coming out of the backfield and receiving, kind of being an outlet guy, being aware, being a plus blocker, being a good runner, a guy who can do everything for you. And that's just this offense doesn't really ask him to like shine in those kind of ways as much as uh, I think we would want him to. And the other guys are just better running in this behind this zone blocking scheme. And we talked last week about some guys are better at that and worse at the other thing. And he happens to be in a system now where he's not at least at this point as good as those other two guys running behind a wide zone or whatever stuff that we are prefer to run.
2: Yeah, absolutely. That That's for sure. And, and again, Montrell's ahead right now on zone running. He's ahead of everyone. He almost always does the exact right thing. But that's what's great. We said when we picked him up, that's the best thing ever. Because for a guy like ETN, he can just watch what Montrell does. I got to copy that guy. And if I do, I'm more explosive than him. It's beautiful system. That's what you want. And that's that's another silver lining so far, Alan, is the the players that Billy's brought with him or has recruited – are quickly becoming contributors at a high level. And that shows you his systematic way of recruiting and thinking and building a team is paying off. A lot of Florida's struggles are coming from guys that he has inherited. And we're going to talk about the big picture here in the final discussion, so I'll save it. But I want you to make note here. We haven't talked yet about what does it mean for Napier. Is this good, bad, or indifferent? But year one of any new coach is a foundation year, period. And many coaches have mediocre results. It's one reason why I didn't want to pick us to have nine wins, but I stumbled into it because, hey, a lot of coin flip games, you tend not to win that many games in year one. Florida's roster, as we've said, has got some nice spots, but it's not awesome despite having a lot of highly rated guys. Uh, you know, we talked about this before the show. Alan McElwain hit on a crazy amount of guys that became uber productive and talented players. Mullen's own players did not become those guys. They're not the guys McIlwain had. Go back and look at our rosters and name all your favorite guys. Those are all McIlwain recruits. So Napier inherits a roster that has some guys that are four stars, a few five stars, but the guys on offense, they yeah. don't have that same flash. There's no Tony. There's no Pitts. We can go on and on. We don't have those guys. We do have better offensive lines and better stuff, but I think Napier's guys so far though have proven they can play. Torrance, rock solid. Oh, on Cyrus Torrance, by the way. Yes, Cyrus Torrance, rock solid on the line. Montreal, rock solid. Trevor Etienne, guy he recruited, brought him in rock solid. Right. And
1: they're already getting contributions from
2: these freshmen, Devin Moore, Shamar James. And Devin Moore, solid. Shamar James basically a starting linebacker. So that is huge because that's what you need to see. That's a that's a bright, bright shining star after a bad loss. Is it's not oh man, Napier's guys are are not good, right? It's actually the opposite right now. And so you gotta deal with some of that wonkiness as we transition over. Uh, that's, you know, that's part of the process. Anything else right? you want to note before we move to changes we'd like to see? So, no, I think like if you want to really find the in-depth story of the entire game, uh, check out the film review. I, I go through a ton of plays. You can watch it all happening. It's better than I can explain it here. I've, I've really just talked more as we did about the big picture of a quarterback and the importance of confidence. But as far as scheme wise, what Kentucky did, how they did it, check that out. You'll see everything you wanted to know about how this game went down. I think it's going to be a very in- instructive video for the future because if he overcomes those things, then we'll see him put it on a film. If he doesn't, you're going to see a lot of what Kentucky did all throughout the rest of this year employed by other teams.
1: All right, there's some route combos that have been interesting that are, you know, I think staples of what Ford wants to do on occasion, but I think have <laughs> uh, been maybe overused or not as effective as we want to. Um, often features offense is just sending out two wide receivers and a check down. And then also, probably more east west throws than what we would prefer to see. Would you just want to not
2: scrap those entirely, but
1: move them out of the foreground?
2: Yeah, I think, yeah, and the changes you'd like to see category here. And this is this is this occurred under Mullen, too. I basically said the same thing I'm gonna say now is retire those east west throws when you don't have the numbers. I don't mind an east west throw if you have the numbers. But as this game flipped and time went on, and we saw this against Utah, and I mentioned I don't expect to see this very often in the future because he didn't do it a lot of Louisiana, we started running east-west throws 3v4. That is not going to work, especially against a Kentucky team who is generally excellent against east-west throws. That's what they're really good at because they play a lot of cover three. their, Their defenders are watching into the backfield on almost every single snap. They're great at that stuff. You're just not going to get a lot out of that. And we did it because you're thinking, Hey, AR can complete this pass and it's safe, but it's really a wasted play with our offensive line. I'd rather run the ball. That's what we're going to do. Secondarily, look, Kyle Shanahan, You know, difficult time with Trey Lance out there in the pouring rain in Chicago. We'll see how that storyline unfolds, right? But he's sort of the master of this offense. And all of you know on this podcast that I do not favor this offense. I've said this before. This is not my favorite style of offense. I prefer spreading them out. I prefer more of an air raid style with pro style running. I prefer going under center. But this offense can work. It's a functional, effective offense. It can work, and it's theoretically sound. I don't like what's happening here, though, early on. Uh, we are sending two guys out and that's the same thing Kyle Shanahan will do in the NFL, but we do not have an explosive playmaker at receiver. That's capable of getting past people by any significant margin. Teams are also getting a really good feel for when we're running these plays. So we tried probably five or six vertical shots and between two games. Now that's five or six, that's 12 total. And we've completed exactly none of them, but like 0 for 12 on our send two guys out play action plays. That's horrific. A team built on play action has to hit that. On top of that, we're often wasting people blocking. Kentucky was able to double bracket both of our two receivers going out and shadow our check down while we employed oftentimes a tight end and a running back as mass protectors that we didn't need because we have a great offensive line. We don't need that. The reason you tend to max protect Allen and send two guys out is you're trying to run play action when a team thinks you're running the ball. And they've got eight guys in the box and they're going to commit their players to running in and you have to max protect because if you don't, those run stoppers are going to be able to turn themselves into blitzers and they're going to get you, right? But that's not happening on film with Florida. So I would like to see us take a change here and give Richardson more targets, more guys to throw to. He does read the field well. Did it break down? Yes. But in general, he's quick to read the field when things are going well. And I can tell you this. Billy's got to do something to go away from maybe his core offense with AR right now, because that regression on film is a sign of something I haven't mentioned yet, which is Richardson is not comfortable with a passing offense that he's, that he's been dealt with right now. This is not comfortable for him, right? He comes from more of a spread offense background, a lot more 11 personnel, three, four receiver sets. He is not comfortable with the throws they're asking him to make. He's not super comfortable with throwing after play action, A lot of quarterbacks are like this. It takes time to get used to it. We have to do some things to make it better. And here's a few ideas. One, we should limit how often we're running those orbit motions or jet sweeps. Use motion. But we're often taking Xavier Henderson, running him on a huge orbit motion where all he is is a check down option. We're not threatening the defense at all. We're also taking away our best vertical route running option and we're running out, you know, Ricky and somebody else like Justin Shorter, who no one's afraid of going deep. I like Shorter. He's not going to go deep. So we're not threatening defenses vertically Two, and I think this is a really important one. I would like to see Billy Napier adopt more of what Shanahan does and go under center. Florida has a great offensive line. We have fantastic running backs. If you go under center, it makes your play action much more effective, right? The pistol set is effective with a running quarterback, but if teams are going to be able to play eight guys in the box, double rushed Anthony Richardson's right side, the side he wants to rush out of, we're not going to be able to be that effective out of the pistol. But if you go under center, your play action becomes much more deceptive. And I think Florida has got to do something to get this pass offense going. And lastly, I thought the biggest failure of this game for me, and it's two games in a row now, and we talked about this once upon a time with Dan Mullen, the route combinations are beyond pedestrian, and they often don't make a lot of sense. And that's frustrating me to no end. We've talked about in the past running cover three beaters, cover four beaters, cover two beaters, man beaters. In a game where Kentucky played man nine or 10 times and you knew it pre snap, we didn't run a single set of mesh routes where the receivers cross each other. We didn't run any underneath crossing routes. We didn't run any pick routes like a slant wheel. These are all basic man to We didn't run a single one of them. And in fact, in the last play on fourth down, the critical play on fourth down, we try to hit frasers on a slant route. We put three receivers to the left and they don't even run routes, they're just decoys. We're going to throw the slant route no matter what. Now, look, if you've got a premier receiver running a slant route one-on-one against an underman quarterback, that's a great route. Frazier's is not – he's not no. that guy. No offense to him. He's not that guy. So then you have your better receivers on the left side, but you have three out of them, three on three, in a cover zero. There's no safety. You can run a million different things to get a guy open in college football. That is so easy. Yes, and that would kill me. Killed me that now two games in a row – Teams have invited us to run the most basic, easy, fundamental man-beating routes, and we have not put a single one on tape. That is a gross failure by Billy Napier on route combination, play calling, scheming, etc. And that junk has got to stop. And I really hope this is temporary, but I'm getting a little worried because this is easy, fundamental stuff. This is basic passing stuff. And what we are doing on film would make any DC feel real confident that they could play zero or one against us and not fear anything. Cause what are we doing? This is base football stuff, right? Basic stuff. And that would have helped Richardson make these throws easier, utilize formations, utilize route combinations. And again, with Dan Mullen, you've heard me talk about this and Dan went into like super sano mode and hit home runs with this stuff, right? All of a sudden we became like a passing savant team, which was awesome. And now we've regressed to like high school level and I don't like it. And so that's something to follow. It's early. I'm going to follow it because you know me. I love passing the football, and I'm not thrilled right now with the combinations that are being run at all. Uh, Agreed. And that, that's got to get better. Yeah, on that
1: critical fourth down, I was watching the Cowboys-Bucks game last night uh, just for fantasy purposes. <laughs> the game was over. But you can see they they highlighted this play where Tom Brady is licking his lips because they're in a situation where they have Mike Evans with no help. And he's a giant. And he's going to run that similar pattern. And there's no chance of stopping it one-on-one. And Brady's like, cool, you're going to give me this? Every time the Cowboys went into this look, he's basically like, this is free money. And if you have something like that, of course, and you see it on fourth down, cool. If it doesn't work, you have to go, okay, that's weird that it didn't work because we love this. I can't imagine we loved that. So... We got to do something else. And that also tells me that we're not ready. Whatever level of the offense we're at, my assumption is, and I could be wrong, is that Richardson or the offense or the receivers or whatever the combination of that is is not ready to do the stuff that you're describing because we're not doing it. It feels obvious. So there's something limiting. I can't b- imagine that Billy Napier doesn't know those route combinations or to deploy them. It's like, what is rich is he trusting AR at that point in the game to go? I'm going to give you multiple looks and to cover zero and trust you the right thing on a high leverage moment. Or is he going to say, we're going to run this slant to the right, throw it to the guy. So I don't know. Neither is, neither is good news that we're on such base level install that this is the best we can do. Or, Some component of our offense is not encouraging us to do that or our coaching staff isn't
2: savvy enough to deploy them. Yeah. And that's the hard part because installing man, man beaters, I know it sounds funny, a man beater, but installing man to man beaters in your playbook is one of the easiest things you can do. And, it's largely because the route running is not that important if you're going to use multiple receivers. Now, route running is everything if it's one on one. But like we said, this is this is to your point. We don't we don't have we don't have a one on one route running guy that's amazing. Or if we did, why don't you put why don't you put Ricky Parasol over there by himself? We didn't. We put Frazier's there. Yeah, a and a guy who's used, Frazier's, but not a knock, but not a guy on film we've put out there being some route running savant who gets wide open. He's generally more of a vertical route runner. And that's confusing to me. That's confusing. That's a play that obviously we have on the chart. We've practiced and in practice that maybe that's working, but I don't know how your best route runner is put in a three man bunch where he just goes into a a mosh pit and turns his brain off and doesn't run anything. What the heck is that? If you have Cooper cup, you put Cooper cup on the outside one-on-one, let him tear somebody up. So if the guy wearing number one in Florida's Jersey is not the guy that's going to be matched up in a cover zero man to man over there by himself, then why is he wearing number one? So I have a lot of questions about what's going on in the passing game, but ultimately I can get a high school quarterback to run double slants in an out route or, you know, double hitches and an under route and throw that ball. It's not even a read. You're either going to throw it to the out route or you're going to throw it to the under. We're not asking anything complicated here. It's the same one play read, but you're going to use the chess pieces to give you a screen, to give you a block, to give you help. So baffling. We have to chronicle it. we got to see what's going to happen, but I am frustrated with that. I saved it for the end because that's starting to increase my level of frustration And again, of course, with coaches, the question you could ask is, of course, they know this stuff. Of course, they know that there's these different man beaters. You yourself can Google them in five minutes and see all the plays NFL teams use to beat man. It's right there in front of your face. It's not hard to figure it out. But knowing it and doing it are two different things. And so far on film, through two games, we've done none of it. And teams are being extra awarded for playing really aggressive, cover zero, cover one against us. And you have to punish them. And you mentioned Tom Brady. I'm glad you did. You're going to complete less passes against man. So Brady completes 58% of his passes against man coverage, but he tears you up, crushes you. Those plays are generally for touchdowns or for huge chunk yards. And until Florida starts chunking people against man defense, it's going to make teams zone defenses better. It's going to make their run defense better. It's going to make everything better. And that's got to stop. we got to find a way. And I think you can help him by giving him easier passes to make. You don't have to be Danny Werfel, a guy who loves throwing against man because he's so accurate, right? You don't have to be that if you give him better route combos. We know that AR's accuracy right now seems to be struggling. He probably doesn't want to be putting the putting a one-on-one ball right on someone's face mask. So give him some help. Yeah, some this is what's the hard thing
1: is, I would say of his like relative strengths, You were talking about his accuracy, and someone was talking about him playing like Emery Jones. Well, the problem with a player like Emery is he doesn't, it's not like he's inaccurate, which he is, but he doesn't know where he's supposed to go with it for the most part and is late in deciding. Richardson is usually on time and knows where he's supposed to go. So these types of combinations shouldn't be a problem for him. No, not at all. So easy. it's easy. It's it's a breakdown somewhere. Okay, let's talk about him running for a minute.
2: Yeah, this is the last change yeah. we'd like to see. And I think...
1: Can I ask you just quickly on yes, this? Yes,
2: do it. I was going to say, I think this might be the most practical application and the easiest one to do if right. you're trying to win this year.
1: So you just talked for a while, and I think did a good job of talking about why... It was difficult to deploy him. It wasn't like, "Hey, just do this against Kentucky," because just run him, and we were deciding not to. So, if teams employ a similar Kentucky strategy, is there a way to get him loose running the ball? That's not just him powering into the line.
2: Well, I think that's kind of the key, and I have listed on here that if you want to get him involved, and he might he might be a guy who needs to get involved to make his passing game better. And I'm gonna I'm gonna cite one Tim Tebow as that. Tim Tebow is always better when you let him smash into a line and get himself going early on. And Urban was smart to do that, right? I think a lot of people thought, man, they're pretty reckless with Tim. Well, Tim was kind of indestructible. But I think Urban correctly knew that Tim Tebow is not Tim Tebow if he's standing back there throwing the football, right? There's a part of his game that you have to get him going. And I think perhaps Napier really has learned this after this game. For the rest of this year, if I want to win, I might need to open up these games letting AR run the ball, even if it's an eight-man box. I just let him smash into the line. Let him take some hits. Let him feel it. Let him get going. Let the juices get flowing. Let him be an athlete, right? Let him have the ball in his hands, not distributing. Let him be more of a playmaker. The goal of any quarterback at the highest level is to become a distributor. That's the goal. You can't just be a playmaker. But in college, don't turn that off yet if it's going to really affect his ability to pass. So I think... There's no easy answer to that question because if teams want to load up and stop you against the run, you have to pass. But I think again, you saw urban in the early spread days, find ways just enough to get his quarterback running. And what was that often? And here's the hard part for Florida. Well, it was Percy Harvin, right? It's the same thing that Shanahan does. Why does he have Debo Samuel? And why does he have guys that are super athletic taking handoffs? Because he has to do something to let his quarterback be mobile. Who's that, who is that going to be for Florida? We don't have that guy, dude. We don't have anyone like that. We have no one like that. We have no one that threatens a defense with speed. We don't have a playmaker. It's a huge problem for us. We don't have that guy. So I think that leaves you with what I'm going to call the Tebow plan. You just say, look, AR, I got to get you going. I'm going to smash you into the seven man box early on. Just once or twice to get you to get the feel for it, right? And also throw some speed option in there. It's kind of criminal that we're not running that right now. And I've never really seen Napier run it, but that's an easy play to install. Our O-line can handle it. Give him a chance to also run at someone and make a pitch, right? Just, just two, three times a game. Just something in your first 10 plays that let him be an athlete and a guy with a ball in his hands rather than a quarterback to get him settled. I think that's going to be of critical importance moving forward.
1: And you mentioned Urban Meyer. This is you know legendary for him. Had to make adjustments to the SEC and to his roster when he comes over, right? Correct. Has to add a fullback. Has to start doing things that are outside his wheelhouse schematically. Okay. I don't prefer to play like this, but with this roster and this group of players, we have to do this to be successful. So I don't have a speed option in my playbook, but we, there it is. On <laughs> Time YouTube. to install one. It's right, not hard. Put it there exactly. right. So yes. Is he willing to make the kind of schematic adjustments that are going to help this roster and this group of players be successful? Yeah, we'll see. And, you know, USF is – we're going to get to them. They're not going to challenge in the ways that the better teams will. And so what does that look like for us moving forward? Okay, you ready to talk about the defense?
2: I'm ready, yeah. Good session there on offense. A lot of stuff. Hopefully you guys gleaned some good stuff from that. There's just just so much to talk about from that game that, you know, we wanted to try to give you a deep dive as much as we could. All right, the defense played very well
1: for the most part. Still a few – Loose elements there, but here's the stats. So, 202 yards passing, 70 rushing, 4 of 13 on third down, 3 of 4 in the red zone, held Kentucky to 13 points on 4 red zones, drives be red notes here, three sacks, seven hurries, one pick. Overall, a very successful day um, against what we knew was a potentially limited Kentucky offense, missing Chris Rodriguez, missing a lot of their offensive line. They were not a scary unit. They Did some things to move the ball down the field and particularly throwing to their tight end, but the defensive side seemed to perform how we expected them to, wanted them to. Would you agree with that just
2: baseline statement? Yeah, that's the key. If you wanted to sum this game up in two sentences, you would say, well, UF's defense got better from week one to week two, and that's what you would have hoped for. And UF's offense laid an egg from week one to week two, which you would not have expected. So the defense had the harder challenge, in theory, coming into this week. This is a unit that's been maligned. We were hopeful last week they'd get a lot better, and they did. Now, they still had issues, which we're going to talk about here in a second. But all in all, on film, they were a better unit. And most importantly, if you really calculate the points that were scored in the game and what the defense actually gave up, right? Florida's offense scored fewer points than they gave to Kentucky. If you kind of play it out as though if, if the defense gives the offense, the ball on the 30 yard line and the offense scores a touchdown, they get four points, right? They add four points because the defense gave them three. If you go about it that way, you know, then Florida's defense did a great job of keeping Kentucky out of the end zone. And really outside of a couple of plays, Alan, Kentucky's offense wasn't an offense. I mean, they no. get a 50 yard jump ball, When Kimber is on top of the route, locking him down, and this is a good question to ask, he doesn't have a left arm because it's in a cast. Do we need to be playing Kimber in this game in that situation? Because we have other healthy DBs where if they use their left arm, he probably blocks that. I'm pretty sure Kimber blocks that ball with the left arm. He purposely didn't even raise his left arm there. But either way, he's in perfect coverage. That's just a jump ball. It's a 50-50 ball that's not actually 50-50. It's more like probably 10% in that case. And the guy makes a great play. But and that's that's their big highlight offensive play. And Will Levis said, yeah, actually, we haven't had that much success running that in practice. Yeah, of course not. Because they, we, we were all over that play. It was, it was, there was no success, right? Levis looked at it and thought, that's all I have. Which, you know, good for them for taking a chance. But Florida, despite having some issues, which again, we'll talk about. Did a really nice job and played beyond well enough to win this game. When the score is, ask yourself this, Alan. The score is sixteen to seven. Kentucky's gifted us, you know, a safety. But it's sixteen to seven. We're at home. We have the ball. The only touchdown Kentucky scored was a fifty-yard jump ball. Florida's offense had missed a million opportunities, and all you're thinking is, if we drive down and score right now, right, the score will be twenty-three to seven, and we might win fifty to ten because the defense was shutting them down, shutting them down. So, of course, the defense exceeded the expectations that we had to have to win while still making mistakes. But all in all, this is this is good film, and this is a good segment for us to talk about because they got better.
1: Yeah, I was really pleased that really all levels of defense, you know, having at least relative success. The defensive line who, you know, took some flack, played really well for the most part. I loved Cox in this game. There's a highlight that's been floating around of him just absolutely blowing up a tackle, basically sacking Will Levis with his own tackle. He looked great. Dexter looked stellar on numerous plays. You know, the linebackers, Miller, everybody filled their gaps, stopped the run. They were having – they shouldn't be good at running the ball, and they weren't running the ball well. And it's just as we said, there was was no – you weren't afraid of them, right? So – So they played well. Do you you want to highlight any particular improvement from any unit or player?
2: Well, for sure. Before we get into the stuff that wasn't perfect, let's talk about Cox. We said last week, hey, look, the coaching, this coaching staff, we think if they are what they are, is going to get the best out of Cox. And he's going to actually listen to them and make an improvement. Well, you know, Cox, if you're listening, great (laughs) job, by the way. Yeah. Right. Um, Because in general, that's what you want to see. He did not have a single left assignment this week, not one. And I imagine in film study this week, they played that up to the heavens because you want your best player or one of your best players to set the example for the rest of your players. And when the coaching staff holds him accountable and then he does it, you want to praise that because your freshmen see it, your guys on the on the two deep see it and they know, hey, look, I have to do this to play at this school. And he did it and it was phenomenal. And I want to celebrate that because we hadn't seen him do that for an entire game. And that game was very frustrating. He had every reason to be pissed off and try to make a hero play. And he didn't, but because he stayed within himself, Alan, you know what he did get? He got himself a strip that became an interception because Dexter picked it off and he should have had a sack. Both of those plays were because he honored his job as the edge defender. And I want to praise that as highly as possible. I also thought that Dexter was fantastic in this game. He had an interception. He had a pass deflection. He had multiple solo tackles where he just broke through the line Um, he's really emerging into the talent that people wanted him to be and thought he would be. I thought he just had an outstanding football game out there. Uh, And then I think overall, Florida's secondary was mostly solid, infinitely better than previous years when it comes to positioning. Still a few little mistakes here and there, which I expect will get better each week, but we're lining up on almost every play with the proper starting leverage. And that's where you see the coaching take effect, right? The coaches should be able to get the players in the proper starting spot. And then from there, players are probably still going to make some mistakes. And then next week, they clean those up. And so from week one to week two, we had players with the proper leverage. They were funneling them to the correct areas of the field. They were working together to be able to cover. And that was that was really solid. And that's largely what led Florida to kind of bending but not breaking at times, is they weren't just going to give you the final blow. They were going to give you all sorts of tight ends running free. because once again, either Dean who's largely to blame or any combination of linebacker, whether it's Bernie or ventral Miller, multiple times, Florida has two people covering the same guy because we cannot fundamentally understand how to cover play action. Now I know for sure that Tony is telling those guys exactly what to do and they're just not getting it right. Right. This is like a plague and teams see it and they're going to keep doing it. And that's, that's an Achilles heel. They were successful with that all game long. That's a, that's an issue. That's a problem. If you took that particular play away, they could not move the ball in their base offense. We pretty much took them out of their base offense. They want to run spread. They just kind of stopped trying. Because like we said last week against Utah, our defense is going to be really good against that kind of stuff. But to Kentucky's credit, what they did do was go more into those goal line sets. Went really heavy. Went really heavy. And my major critique against Florida, and I'm going to put this in our things we have to change, is that Florida continues to stick super hard-headingly with three down linemen despite the fact that Kentucky was putting one receiver out there and 10 dudes in the box. What the heck are we doing? We're playing with two arms tied behind our back, and our D-line last week and this week, honestly, is doing such a good freaking job that they're still allowing us to to play pretty well, despite being significantly undermanned. Yeah. So I thought that was a nice adjustment by Kentucky to basically abandon their actual regular offense in the second half and just say, forget it. Let's just do this because it's less risky, and we're having some success. Yeah, they did start running the ball,
1: not for big chunks, but enough to hold the clock, to Correct. move the ball a little, pick a few first downs. And, you know, I was theorizing, why why didn't Florida go with more defensive linemen? You know, Especially in that first game, if you've got, got inexperienced guys who normally play tackle or in, and you're asking them to control a different gap or do different things, you're just not comfortable with putting them out there against a team like Utah, I totally get that. We need to start seeing that now that these guys, if they're going to play, you have to have some five, dare I say, maybe even six man fronts. If the teams are going to absolutely load up like that, but at least a five man front shouldn't be hard for you to accomplish. There's enough guys who at this point, I think would be able to, okay, when we're in this formation, you've got to do this right again. They probably weren't ready for that week one. Well, now people see Kentucky again, they didn't maybe need to do it against Kentucky. They thought, well, Everyone is going to do this until you until you stop them, right? And the defensive line, as good as it is, is not equipped for that, right? And we're we're being a little stubborn about it. Now, again, it shouldn't have mattered in this game. If you're winning by 30 and Kentucky wants to load up in 13 personnel and run the ball for two and a half yards of carry, you're like, please, I'd love for you to do that. I'll stay in this defense and let you do that all day. But in that point in the game, we didn't adapt and as you said, the linebackers still struggling in pass coverage. Con- Kentucky is not Utah at the tight end position. Those guys are nothing special, but they were open and making plays because we were refusing, seemingly, to cover them correctly. I don't think this is a, a coaching issue, right? Because this has been a longstanding issue that Trey Dean struggles here, the linebackers struggle here. And I don't know if this is really going to change until new guys are in there. Right. For as good as Ventral Miller is at hitting the gap and stopping a guy, and he did that really well again on Saturday. And a lot of times, he's a liability there. Bernie, who theoretically, this should be a strength liability. Can any of these young guys figure it out enough? And I guess we're going to find out because Ventral Vin- Vin Miller, I don't know if he's going to play this week. Yeah. So that's still going to be a thing that we're going to have to deal with because everyone's going to look at their tight
2: ends and say, I guess they're not going to cover you. Here comes
1: double your targets this week.
2: Correct. And that and that's, that's something that, you know, we said from the beginning, right? Linebackers are Florida's defensive weakness. It's a significant weakness. Teams are going to game plan for it. They're getting a bonus because our strong safety Dean is absolutely horrible right now at doing anything right when it comes to making the read. And in general, Florida's defense is, struggling to learn how to how to read where the play is going something Kentucky does very well Kentucky's linebackers have good eye control they watch the backfield and when they diagnose where the play is going they don't just run to where the ball carries they run to where the ball carries going now Tony will get our guys to this this is this is what happens when you have three years of a horrifically bad defensive coordinator who's basically taught your team nothing substantially good they don't know how to play football and that's not a dramatic statement. That's just reality. So Tony is sort of teaching them, here is how you play football. It does get better every week. Like we mentioned, it was, despite how bad this was this week, it was better in other regards at other times. It wasn't always bad. But Kentucky missed maybe three or four more chances to hit tight ends. We either got pressure and got a sack. Uh, we either had a tipped pass or guys were just wide open. And that's got to get cleaned up or that is going to plague Florida's defense for the rest of the year and this one i'm not as worried about with so florida's corners at times different guys struggle with edge control a little bit they get a little bit too far inside they don't come downhill enough but all in all more than half the plays florida's edge control gap fill was good not just okay good And that's huge progress from last year i expect that to continue and pretty soon you're going to actually start having corners and guys coming downhill reading plays stopping some of these run plays for zero yards as opposed to four uh, but there's progress being made there. So the good news is, even in the scenarios that are bad, you can see progress being made. Now I think there's some questions we have to ask of Tony Allen is, you know, are we going to keep our head in the sand here in the changes we'd like to see category? Are we going to keep playing undermanned sets with our down linemen? Look, it's pretty standard. Turn on any NFL game. If teams are running a goal line offense, you're going to have five down linemen. Sometimes four, if you think they really want to pass out of it, but always four, and probably five, sometimes six. Florida plays three. And if it's a fourth, it's Cox putting his hand in the dirt, but really he's not going to function that way. So Kentucky had a bunch of young guys out there. If you want to play your young guys, great chance to put your young defensive lineman out there against a young offensive lineman. Missed opportunity. And then I think secondarily, Dean has got to go. He's got to be on the bench, Alan. He is a massive liability at this point in time. I'm not sure what he even helps the team with on defense. Someone else has got to get a chance to play significant minutes there. He is is a sieve for this football team, and he's not getting better. I know they have to see it. I don't care what story they tell me. Someone else has got to get a chance to play minutes, and we have got to see if someone else can play that role. It's a very important role in this defense, and it's hurting us.
1: All right, I want to talk about Will Levis for a little bit. We've been fairly low on him compared to everybody else, right? And this is a tough moment for him, right? He's missing his running back. His offensive line is not great. He doesn't have that many receivers. I think the thing that still pops about him is that he's a big dude with a big arm, and he moves really well. He bounces off people. He's tough to bring down. He's hard to sack. Still feels like, for me, he's still kind of the guy I thought he was. You know, an athlete, a guy who can get some stuff done, not really a great quarterback at this moment. Did your opinion of him change after this game?
2: No, he was uh, exactly what we thought he was. And this is, again, this is no offense to Levis. One thing I hate about how you can get media members or whomever to blow some guy up as being like, this guy's the best guy ever. It makes you almost like want to talk the guy down right which i'm not trying to do i is a fine college football player he's got a great arm he's a very good athlete but he's not the things people have said about him he still locks onto his first read he rarely makes a read at all Allen. he made multiple very questionable throws in this football game that he got away with that could have been picked and weren't picked or etc uh, there's nothing on film right now about him that suggests anything uh, about a high level quarterback he's he's where he should be this is his second year playing quarterback He's got a high ceiling because he has a really strong arm and he's an athlete. But that's sort of the modern world we live in now is the guys that get hype are just guys with like high level ceiling talent, not actually good quarterbacks. And he's just a pedestrian quarterback right now with a lot of scout talent. And that's no offense to him. It used to be that you'd be year two, he'd play four years. He'd be doing great for where he's at. So he's fine for where he's at. He's at a normal level of progression, but I think he's going to have to add those softer skills to his game if he really wants to call himself a top quarterback rather than just a guy who's got a good arm
1: and if he hasn't got there right now i think it definitely remains to be seen whether that he's gonna get there
2: and that's the key that's a great point we always say that if you don't display the ability to make reads typically by this point in time it's pretty hard for you to do it not impossible but generally unlikely and he is a thrower playing quarterback not a quarterback with an arm right now so he just picks a guy he's going to sling it to him no matter what that's not ideally what you want and yeah you can be successful in college playing with his
1: skill set so it's, it's not he's bad just you're missing some of that element that would make him a an elite what well, people are saying right. some
2: sort of you're you know drooling over this guy being like a top five pick or something well i mean that the film's not saying that right now that's for sure okay
1: anything else on defense before we move to special teams
2: no, take, take all in all, just take with it that it was progress. You know, there's if you're thinking, man, there were a lot of issues. Yeah, there are, like we said, there are, but this, this is this, you can't fix this stuff overnight, and some of it could be personnel related, but it got better. And now we want to see if it's going to get better this week,
1: right? And I would think the same Kentucky team with these same limitations would have put up a lot more points, let's say, oh, them and Mueller They would have for sure,
2: so. correct? And that's progress. And so, week to week on film. Do I see progress? If the answer is yes, then I'm going to say this is good coaching. That's the point. And so far, check the box. We one, two, we saw progress.
1: Plenty well enough to win this game.
2: Correct. They didn't let us down. They did what we expected, plus a little more, and they did what we expected in the bad ways too. We thought linebackers would struggle. They did. We thought D. would struggle. He did. That's okay. You want to be predictable. Part of coaching is if your guys give you what you they think they're going to give you, good and bad, you can game plan for that. You can't game plan it for when a guy gives you something you just never saw coming.
1: Yeah, and. Yeah, not everything can get fixed overnight. Okay, special teams. Um, I have no idea whether I'm pronouncing his name right. Adam Milek Two of two, made a 50-yard field goal. That's a really solid kick from a college kicker. It's great. Impressed by him.
2: Yeah, he doesn't have the NFL leg. That ball's not going to the top of the uprights like McPherson would, but it's going in.
1: Yeah, if you can make a 50-yard kick, that's about as good as I can ask.
2: Absolutely. Can. It's fantastic, yep.
1: And then maybe, you know, I don't know. I love having an Aussie. So maybe it's just that, but I love Jeremy Crosshaw. Five punts, crushed it, puts the ball inside the 20. Fantastic out there. Love him. He's a real weapon for us. Not that you want your punter to have to be
2: a weapon, but great guy to have out there. Oh, he's fantastic. I mean, he's a, he is a weapon. And for this Florida team, the way it's going right now, where it looks like we're going to have some volatility with our offense, he's going to become that much more important, flipping the field and pinning teams deep. All right. Uh, we talked about this last week. Are you ready to stop returning kicks now? Question mark? So this is funny because, of course, you heard me say last week I wasn't in favor of doing it, but I gave the defense for why he might want to do it. I have noticed a lot more college football teams are doing this this year. I saw Alabama do it multiple times, yeah. so I don't think he's the only one that's thinking, hey, if no one's doing it, I'm going to do it. But uh, certainly not successful at all. Also, what are we doing? with how we're doing it multiple times. You have two guys back there fighting for the ball and that's not going to work. There's two guys back there. So one of them can be the lead blocker and the guy that you can begin to follow your return behind when you're both fighting for the ball, there is no more lead blocker and you're just wasting a guy. So if we're going to do it, get it right. I'm sure they're going to keep this going a few more games to see if they can't figure it out. We only had one penalty last week. Of course, that was the penalty that ultimately led to that interception, which ultimately really hurt us. We're not gaining any positive field position right now at all from doing this. So I would not be doing it much longer. If I thought it was a good tactic, I'd have to start seeing some results pretty soon. And again, for me, I'd rather just say I'm going to take the ball on the 25-yard line. Thank you very much. Agreed.
1: I'm with you on that. I think the numbers would propose that. I love the counter strategy that you mentioned there, and I, I like that kind of thinking. But if you're not able to
2: execute it, you also have to... Go back to the drawing yeah. board a little and bit. And we don't have board. like who do we have that strikes fear in you as a return? No. If we had some awesome electric player, I'll, hell, let's go. Do it every single time. I love it. I'll take the risk. But we don't we don't seem to have that at all. I'd be interested to see how they proceed with
1: this particular strategy. Okay. A few final thoughts here. Uh I have the question here, is AR broken? And I think if you're an athlete and you've competed on for long enough at anything, you'll have moments where What you're doing falls apart. And that happens a lot as you're learning something. You go, all of a sudden, I can't do this today. What's wrong with me? If you're a baseball player, you get in a slump. If you're a shooter, can't get the ball in the net. This happens, right? For most of us, it never happens, even where we're remotely close to the level of scrutiny that Anthony Richardson had to deal with. So just as an
2: athlete, how do you think you move on from this? Well, I think the answer is process, 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 right? So is he broken? Hopefully not. He shouldn't be. He had a bad game. He regressed some. That happens to any athlete. The way you fix it is you go back to your process. How can I prevent this from happening? Well, I need to make sure next time I'm in a tight spot, remember my technique. Remember my footwork. What's my job? Pre-snap read. Go through your algorithm, right? on the quarterback. Pre-snap read. What do I see? Okay, I see. Looks like cover three. Okay, then go to your next step and go to your next step, right? Sort of your handbook, your algo. Take the snap. I'm in a zero drop, plant my back foot, make my read. Is it there? No, quickly progress. Tell yourself those things rather than, Oh man, it's a close game. I'm not doing very well. I'm not, I'm not trusting myself. Like those are negative thoughts. And it's also not helpful for your process. So I think he's got to go back to square one and say, I've done this before. I can do it again. I need to get better at these things. I need to cement this process so it doesn't happen to this magnitude again. And the reality is I think in the modern world we live in, you know, a lot of people, this has been breaking them more recently. And I think it has something to do with what you mentioned. It's easier to overcome difficulties when you don't feel like the entire world is casting their opinions or judgment upon you. Uh, entrepreneurs are famous for failing. I'm an entrepreneur. You have to fail. It's how you learn. It's part of learning. You want to adopt that mindset. It's easier to adopt that mindset if you're Thomas Edison and you're working on a bunch of light bulbs at your house and you're the kooky inventor in some town, but the whole world is not posting on social media every time your experiment fails and you begin to doubt yourself even more. So I think that does add a level of difficulty to his journey and to all athletes journey. But at the end of the day, the process is the same. You've got to say failure is my friend. It's a teacher. It's a feedback tool. I use it and I make myself better. I'm never going to play perfect. I'm not always going to be the one to win the game, but I am going to be the one to control how I handle these environments and how I handle this process. And I go about it with X, Y, Z plan. And hopefully that's what we see happen here. But you just don't you just don't know, right? We don't know now is, is the answer. We have to find out what he's made of. And we're going to find out who he is. The famous old saying, you're really going to find out who somebody is right when the bullets start flying. the bullets started flying last week and it wasn't great. And now we're going to find out what happens in the next battle. You know, to use a war analogy, what happens now in the next battle when you've got to go charge that turret, do you get of the foxhole or do you stay in there? And that's going to be something that you can only know when you see it happen.
1: For sure. Yeah. You can't know things about yourself until you experience them. As you said, this is a watershed moment for him, meaning you go one way or the other from here. And this guy has not played a lot. I don't think this is the, we're closing the book on him. Um, uh, but he has to respond. And I love what you said about process, right? That's not just magic. Like I just hope I do better next time. It's like, you can work at this both mentally and physically to move on from here. So we'll see where it goes. All right. I'm going to mix a little coaching corner here and final thoughts. Cause we haven't gotten to this and this is somewhat, some of the bigger storyline for this game as we talk about Billy Napier and in game coaching. Um, So I'm going to go ahead and bring this in. All right. Late in the fourth quarter, Florida has three timeouts and is faced with very big fourth downs. I think fourth and three and then fourth and six. Uh, We went for both of those, obviously, did not complete either of them. I know in the stands at the moment, we were both in disbelief that we were going for it. And I'm someone who usually loves to be aggressive going for it on fourth down. I know you in particular were quite distraught at these decisions. Do you still feel the same way here on Monday?
2: I do. And this is great because this mixes the two things I love, which are data and momentum. Momentum is the human element that factors into how your team is playing, how your players are feeling, what the environment and mood is like, right? And those two things are important because you can't just look at expected value in these tactical situations. And I'll give you an example. Uh, it's been floating around the internet that the expected value of going for the first one was plus one 1.9% 1. and not, or going for the second one was like a minus 0. 0.1. But to me, what that tells me is that's not statistically significant. Right. So I need to look at something more because it's not a big enough EV advantage to do it or not do it, especially because those data sets are looking at large sample sizes. And I would want to see what's the EV of doing this when I'm three for 15 on third down, because I bet you that would not be plus one point nine percent. Right. So again, stats are, are amazing, but you got to use them correctly. You want to find the situation that's applicable to yours, and that's why, Alan, for you and I, who both loved obviously going for fourth down last week and generally love going for it, didn't like it here. Why? Because Florida's offense couldn't get first downs. We were struggling mightily. Most importantly, we're on our own side of the field, current. and we're down by seven, which means if we don't get it, They go up two scores, and we're having a hard enough time getting one score. We're also at home where the crowd can help you, and our defense is playing pretty well, and their offense every time they pass looks somewhat risky. We're getting a lot of pressure on them. Lastly, and this is the principle I live by, this is the one that influences it. If you want to understand what I'm going to say, it's pretty simple. What puts the most amount of pressure on your opponent? And that's where game theory comes in. So now we're mixing everything, right? We're mixing data. We're mixing momentum. We're mixing game theory. If you are Kentucky, what would you have wanted Florida to do there? Go for it. And if you said punt, you are lying to yourself. Go for it. A million times over. Everyone in the stadium could see you at a quarterback with shattered confidence. They can't complete a pass. You want them to go for it because now, you know, if they get it, whatever, they still have to go all out on the field and score. But if they don't get it, you get a field goal. The game is over. It gives you an outright shot to win quickly. Now, the flip side of this, Alan, is if Florida's offense is moving the ball really well and you're Kentucky, you want them to punt it. So we've said this for years on this podcast. One of the easiest tests of game theory is to ask, what would my opponent want me to do right now and do the opposite? And the answer is they would have said, go for it. And Billy should have said, I'm punting. And in that situation, the most pressure is to keep the pressure on them to not make a mistake. You have a great punter, pin them deep within their 10 yard line, and then keep playing this game you're only down one score keep trying to hope that Richardson has something happen that you get a broken play that you get a big play but don't bet the farm on a fourth and three when your quarterback has no confidence on a slant route by himself and then definitely don't do it with four plus minutes left on fourth and six after you've been given a gift to where they missed the field goal and now you look even worse on offense than you did in the previous drive don't do it then you have three timeouts punt make a stop right Now, I know a lot of you are going to say, that's crazy. You got to go for it. You got to go for it anyway. Hopefully, you're understanding at least where I'm coming from. There's no perfect answer to this. It's very much a personal decision. But I think if you factor in those three things, you factor in data, momentum, and game theory, I think there is a conclusion that a lot of you are reaching. We were reaching in our section independently. And perhaps you hadn't quantified it like that. But I think that's what's going on in your head. And I didn't like it. And I felt like it was almost aggression for the sake of being aggressive rather than truly being a wise general assessing your, your troops, looking at the situation and saying, not yet. Let me defer.
1: Yeah. And it kills me when teams punt in these scenarios, right? Like you're down two scores with four minutes left. What are you doing punting? That murders me when teams do that. It's like you're giving up the game. But if we didn't pick it up and they kicked that field goal, which they missed it, right? We dodged a bullet, but the game is over right there. You're basically locking yourself out of the game. The same way you are if you punt and you're down two scores, you're basically locking yourself out of the game outside of Miracle. Also, where we were on the field, right? We would have still had to drive a really long way. If we were on like, you know, on their forty and we decided to punt, I would have maybe rioted. Right. But where we were on the field, giving them a chance at an easy field goal. Yeah, just felt like that was the wrong move tactically and emotionally. Plus, what is Kentucky most likely going to do under Mark Stoops? They're going to go super conservative, run, 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 punt the ball back to you. This is not a shootout. Like if you're if your defense is stopping nobody and you're playing the Kansas City Chiefs, punting is insanity. You've got to go for it because you're probably not going to get the ball back still down one score. So there's times where that decision going forward on that part in the field against a particular team in a particular game set makes all the sense in the world. And I would be hundred percent for it. And I would yell at somebody for punting. And this scenario felt like the most likely outcome was us getting stopped, them kicking a field goal and the game being over. And when you lock yourself into that certain scenario, that just feels really bad tactically. Now it could have worked, but the upside was still that we're we're really far away from accomplishing what we want to do. So I I disliked it a lot with four minutes. I disliked it less with two minutes because
2: our offense is gonna need a little bit of time. Well, it wasn't two minutes though, it was eight minutes and four minutes. Eight minutes and four minutes, excuse me. Yeah. So I mean theoretically. Was it that? Yes, it was. Okay. Don't worry, I've broken it down there you go. Multiple times in the film. Yes. Eight 836 eight thirty six or so and four fifty. I had or my so. doubles there mixed up. Yeah. So, yes, I, I,
1: I dislike it a lot more this the first time around.
2: Yeah, for sure. But the second time around, you still, again, you would also get momentum, right? You had just yep. stopped them. They missed the field goal. So you actually, the stadium gets new momentum. Then it gets drained out with the bad offensive possession, but punt it. Ask yourself this question. If you punt, are fans leaving? No. You didn't get it. Did they leave? Sure did. You ended the game do you have to eventually convert? Yes, you do, but don't lose the home crowd, which is an X factor for you punt and keep them involved. And now there's still pressure. If you're Levis, Florida punts, there's four minutes left. They have to convert two first downs. It's still a lot of pressure on you. You're the running back. You don't want to fumble. There's still game pressure on them. Right. And I also think here's the, here's the benefit. So Suns doing in the art of war, is dead right when he comes to this really important observation that pretty much every military commander has followed ever since then. You always want to leave your opponent with an escape route. You always want them to have a way out because they don't fight as hard. Well, one benefit of deferring this decision for a guy who's struggling at quarterback is eventually your back's against the wall and you have no way out. There is no more time. And I would have rather have seen that happen where Richardson gets the ball back with two minutes left. And now you go in as a quarterback and you're like, look, it's either do or die. I'm losing or I'm not losing. There's not enough time for someone else to help you. You have to do it yourself. And so that's also a benefit at times to guys, right? To make a play. But regardless, you can choose whatever side you want to choose on this one. I think though, Alan, you summed it up nicely to say, this is a tactical decision. Sometimes you got to separate yourself from the meta strategy. And if this EV was like plus 10%, then it's like, you got to do it. But it's not. It's basically a coin flip as to whether you should or shouldn't. And that requires all the finessing of looking at the other variables that are there, which I think you and I both, of course, agree. You know, it should not have been done. And there were other ways. Would we have won? I don't know. But if I'm him, I definitely would have done it differently for sure.
1: So you were pretty hot in the stadium. Thinking about now, does this change your calculus of Napier's progression?
2: Just Not just the fourth down calls, but the entire way this game unfolded? So, yeah, in the stadium, I really felt like I said, wow, it's really amazing. This feels like a a regime falling and coupled with not that like this is anything to say about Napier's future. But, you know, Steve Seitz, our, our, our buddy, had said for a long time that like he didn't want the season to start because everyone loved Napier so much. It was this amazing honeymoon. And the honeymoon was sort of over in a way that I felt like it didn't have to be. So like if Napier had had done the decisions that, of course, I liked, which is very self-serving and biased, right, and punted, I am fine. Hey, AR had a tough game, did all you could. But those two decisions were like, man, for a guy who really likes analytics, coupled with the decision at the end of the first half, which again, you can go either way on these things. I understand that. I'm not saying that there's a definitive path. It felt extra frustrating that your general perhaps didn't, understand the situation well enough to do what you thought may have been a more tactically advantageous plan. But no, this does not change the calculus of Napier's progression at all. And there's many reasons why. One, Napier learns from his mistakes. He's a system builder. If you hear his story, every failure he's had has gone into the Napier algorithm for how to make himself better. So I trust that. Two, there's a lot of evidence that the system is already working, right? Recruiting is flying on the upside. The team culture is really good. The players he's recruiting are doing very well. The guys he's brought in are doing very well. Uh, Now the question is something we asked of Urban. When Urban lost to South Carolina with horrific clock management in that first year and just like no idea what he was doing, Afterwards, he actually admitted it. This is a different urban than probably would have done now. He actually admitted it. Yeah, you know what? I lost track of the clock. That's never going to happen again. And his credit, that never did happen again. He fixed that problem. And you mentioned, Alan, he tweaked the offense. He made some changes at Ohio State. He changed the offense. He made some changes. So it's not about your failure that defines you in this limited data set we have. This is about Napier looking at this game and saying, hey, maybe I need to add to my toolkit a little bit more cognizance of what's happening with the home crowd, the quarterback, the opponent, right? Add some more game theory to my quiver and don't just maybe make a robotic decision. I'm aggressive, scared money, don't make money, I'm going for it because that's not always right. And so for now, no, I mean, I think the path Napier's on is an excellent one. Most coaches that have done really well have not had great first years and he's inherited a, a weird roster in a tough situation. And it, I don't think it's his fault. His quarterback melted down on him. If you've coached anyone in your life, That can happen. Now, this was a significant meltdown, but it can happen, right? And it's not the coach's fault in that instance. So, no, I feel just as good about the future of Napier as I did before. Nothing that happened in that game has changed it for me. I will be very curious to see how we handle it from here. And that's what would change it for me, is what do we do from here? How does he handle it? What does he say? What changes does he make? That's going to determine whether or not I I move some points off of the Napier ceiling.
1: It's weird the these two games coming back to back because it definitely changes the momentum of the season because, you know, if you had talked before the season, Hey, you're going to get a one, one split with Kentucky and Utah. I think most fans would have taken that. This is where we ended up, but it feels really bad because of, like I said, the whiplash reaction and the way the team played relative to their expectations coming in the second game and losing Kentucky is not a crime. Like they're a fine team. We saw some crazy losses that we're going to get to, right? doesn't mean you're like, oh, you're bad now that you lost to Kentucky. I think the way it happened blunts a lot of momentum, right? So if Florida wins this game, if they play even reasonably well, they probably win. You know, they got USF coming up next. And then you have this really big moment against Tennessee. And not that this is the story of like Gator football, but in this season, right, this changes a little bit how things are going to go, how the momentum is, what obstacles are going to overcome. This is what makes it fascinating but definitely blunts, I think, a little bit of the optimism momentum for where we are right now. We'll see how the team handles success and failure, because they have both now. And that that that's really compelling as someone who's observing.
2: And I think that I think this is a great place to end the discussion on the Kentucky game and move forward because that's why this feels so bad. That's why this loss in particular stings so badly. Because you have a, a marquee win out of the gate. You're facing a Kentucky team that's limping in. The fans feel it. Vegas feels it. Everyone feels it, right? Like Florida was like largely a unanimous pick to win this game across the national media as the week evolved. You felt it. I felt it. And then you can't help yourself. I couldn't help myself. I'm thinking we're going to beat Kentucky. We're definitely going to beat USF. I'm rooting hard for Tennessee to beat Pitt, which they did. The stars are aligning. I'm going to get everything I want. I'm going to get a marquee, old-school Florida-Kentucky matchup in Knoxville. Let's go, baby. We're back. And that's what hurts the most about this, right? Is if you flip the script here, and this is why I wanted to end with this. It's really fascinating. Make the Kentucky game the first game. Make the Utah game the second game. We all feel amazing right now. After the Kentucky game, we're like, oh, my gosh, we're screwed. Our lives are this is terrible, right? Our football lives this season are going to be awful. And then we're like, woo, we're here. This is amazing. Look how good we are. Yeah. And that's what happened. That's what happened. It's an expectations game. It's a, it's, 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 it was just a wild reversal of what you would have expected a team that played the way they did against Utah to look against Kentucky, and that's why we're here. But let that be a lesson, though. That can happen in reverse. So now we're down here. USF's not going to change that narrative. Now if we go bad and we lose, we pull a Scott Frost and we struggle, right, that's going to change a lot of things. But if we don't and we go into Tennessee and we beat Tennessee, you're right back on the mountaintop if things look good. And that's where you've got to put yourself. This is just one data point. The second game of Napier's career. Does it mean something? Maybe. Does it mean something? Maybe not. We don't know yet. Just log it, follow it, let it unfold, and we'll know. We'll know in due time. You don't need to guess. You don't have to rush it. The evidence will be there, and we will examine it, and we will react, something we do on this podcast. Don't predict. Examine and react. We're not in control. We can watch, but I think that is where we are all are as fans is you could taste relevance. You could taste a fun season. You could taste everything you want as a football fan. Saturdays are fun and special. And now you're really left wondering what's going to happen. And maybe it's not going to be so fun and special this year. And maybe we're going to take a bunch of L's. And that I think is how this feels.
1: All right. You want to head into coaching corner? A few coaching corners. So
2: obviously covered Florida's already extensively the first half and the second half. We'll leave that alone. I wanted to ask you, your boy lovey smith who's got a sweet beard like you do Mm -hmm. his is even wilder nowadays he chose for the texans to take a tie so they have a fourth down and two or three you may have seen this and again the nfl if you did not catch the 1 p.m nfl games yesterday wild games anthony siliano who i spend my sunday afternoons with for years now i love that guy nfl red zone He basically said he thinks it was the best Sunday afternoon finishes he's ever seen in his 18 years of doing it. And I I think he was right. I've watched a lot of Sunday afternoon finishes, but it was mayhem. Crazy stuff is going down. But one of them is the Texans and the Colts are in this battle to the bottom, so to speak. And Houston has the ball. There's like maybe, you know, 30-ish seconds left. And they're on like their own 40-ish yard line. And it's fourth down and two or three. Now, if they don't get it, they don't get it. The Colts can kick a long field goal. Right now, by Rigo Blankenship, already missed one to win earlier for the Colts, and Lovey staring down a tie, a guaranteed tie. Punt. We're almost certainly tying. The Colts have no timeouts, or go for it. In which case, I can then get twenty yards to my own field goal. He chooses to punt. Would you have made this same decision?
1: Never in a million years. Also, the Texans. Like, what do you have to lose? You're the
2: Texans. That's the point. You're not going to be good this year anyway. I mean, horrific, (laughs) terrible. I couldn't believe it. You're playing at home. You're playing at home. What is wrong with you? Do you want your fans to hate you forever? That was crazy. Hated it. All right, that's one. We're aligned. All right, Steelers-Bengals. This game was nutty. We talked about Joe Burrow just all over the place. And this is more of a coaching note in general than it is a coaching corner. But Cincinnati loses their long snapper. And you don't think long snappers are important until you don't have a long snapper. So they've got to have their tight end snapping who hasn't snapped like since high school. He's the best option they have. And he... Floats a snap in there on the extra point to McPherson. who's already hit a 58 yarder early in the game. It gets there slowly, but most importantly, just like LSU, Allen, the protector does not take away the inside guy. He takes away the outside guy, allowing the inside guy to block the extra point. This game goes into overtime. You get a horrible high snap with McPherson hooking a field goal to the left. You get Pittsburgh kicker, missing it, then making it at the end as time expires. Ultimately, the Steelers win, but what an absurd game. And so the coaching question here is if you are coaching the NFL where <laughs> where a win is like just exhilarating and you feel amazing and a loss is soul crushing, most of these games in the NFL come down to these moments. How do, you, how do coaches in the NFL go about their daily lives with this kind of high and low? I mean, it's a ton of pressure. I mean,
1: it doesn't matter in the same way college games do that you to be successful, you're going to need to win a lot of these. You can be, you can lose some and still rally, but man, it just shows you, you can have an elite kicker. (laughs) If you don't have a snapper, it doesn't matter. And if you can't block the inside rusher, it doesn't matter either. I mean, yeah, that, that was rough. And you know, if you're the Bengals or whatever, you'll, you'll figure it out and get over it. But that, (laughs) that was a wild finish.
2: It's wild. And again, for football, I think I like to bring it up because at the end of the day, it's one and oh and oh and one. And, Football games are decided by zany things, right? And that's the key. You can focus on Florida and think, wow, what a crazy game all these things have and this is nuts. But just watch football in general and pretend it's your team. That's why it's a great game. All right, lastly, and this is just a note here, uh, the best best named player in college football, Arkansas's linebacker, Bumper Pool.
1: Somehow still in college. Just
2: amazing. Recovers the first onside kick and he goes all North Carolina mode, which we did talk about in a previous coaching corner, and tries to score a touchdown. The second onside kick South Carolina kicks to him, he falls down immediately. So good job on the coaches. We had asked the question of North Carolina, don't these coaches tell these guys to fall down? I don't know if they are or are not, but clearly someone told him after the first one that that is not going to happen anymore and you are going to fall down. All right, Alan, why don't you read us some patrons? We are moving on now to uh, still very early in the system here. and Most of these guys are here with our first year of patronage. We work our way up to today.
1: A lot of familiar names to us, people that we know and... Real life quite well. Uh, Evan Davis, Keith Copenhaver, Esteban, Zachary David Helmuth, Elliot Parrish, Mark Raglan, What's up, dude? Adam Hetrick. Hey, as well. Steven, eccentricity.ll, Andrew F., Theodore Lightborn. What's up, buddy? Zach Sparks, Carl Gorski, Jay McWhorter, Scott Poyer, Nick Hess, Travis Young. Listening somewhere in Northern Ireland, presumably. Lost my place here. Carly McMullen. Kevin Davis II, Ryan, Erica Belmore, what's up, Rick Kingsley, the one and oh, only Rick, let's go, Ryan Gilbert, there he is, Gil, part another, of the thread, another uh-huh. part of the thread, Stephen Y. Miller, Jeffrey Corey, uh-huh. very loyal, yes, very loyal man, always contacting us and listening to the pod, thanks, yes. Jeffrey, Jeff, Josh Ball, Ross Finkel, David McIlwainy,
2: Cameron McCaskill, we have Sam Coppinger, what up, Sam, David Evans, Warren Bucknum, uh, Try and Yui. Or Uwe, even? Hmm. Don't know. Uh, Andrew Bergen, Davis Hale, Kip Hop, Cody St. Onge, Brett Magnuson, Eric Collar, Ben Coppinger. The brothers. Yeah, Jared Brunson, Ed Eiman, uh, Sean Gilmore, Matthew McGowan, Jack, Garrett Pignotti, Jeremy Bloor, Cody Flitcraft, Ballard Jones, and Andrew Palumbo. So thanks to all of your support, as always. Each year we do this as a way to just thank you for supporting us. If you haven't stopped, your name still gets read because we appreciate that. All right, games we picked recap, Alan. You smoked it this week, a, a hot seven and three. Let's go. I went five and five. That puts you back in the lead at a scintillating 16 and eight this season. And I'm 14 and 10, which for Very me respectable. Is, a, is a good start. All right. So Clemson, we talked about this last week, played Georgia Tech. They struggled for a long time and then won 41, 10.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm sure they feel pretty good about this, but not great. They're they're still not where they want to be offensively. Yeah, I think
2: they felt really bad, and then they ended and didn't they thought okay, we're getting somewhere. All right, Louisville went on the road to UCF this week, and they, as the underdog, we talked about this. They got smoked in week one. They actually beat UCF 2014. Yeah,
1: I mean, talk about Jekyll and Hyde here. Was not expecting this from them. I'm sure this is a bitter pill for UCF. Oh
2: boy, Gus! All right, South Carolina on the road at Arkansas. Uh, this game was largely out of reach for most of it. Arkansas favored by eight, but they wound up winning 44-30.
1: Yeah, Arkansas is a good team, definitely better than South Carolina. At this. Yeah, point.
2: this is a again Sam Pittman here. You cannot say enough about the turnaround job he has done there. He has They're in dangerous. Very quick fashion made them a powerful and formidable opponent. Good for him. Wake Forest on the road against the up and coming, soon to be <laughs> champions of football, Vanderbilt. <laughs> Vanderbilt gets a dose of reality and gets smacked 45-25. I was
1: shocked you took the Vandy side of this.
2: Only because I said I had to do it just because I was taking them until they lost as sort of a running joke with Clark Lee. That was not really a real scenario. But there it goes. So three games in, I never have to pick them again. (laughs) Good pick by you with Wake Forest. All right. Missouri, this was was poor. Mm. Drink of what's here. There are questions to be answered in Missouri. Good old Eli on the road at K-State, K- a team who a lot of people, very trendy, big 12 team to pick here as a dark horse. You talked about that. K-State just hammers them 40 to 12.
1: Yeah, I, I'm i in on K-State this year. I think they're really talented in, the, in some good spots and they can play. So Missouri, man, they've got a ways to go to get where they want to be. They're recruiting better-ish last year, maybe this year not as well, but if they're not if they can't blow it out recruiting, then they're there's gonna have more results like this.
2: Yeah, they're gonna be in trouble. App State talked about how dangerous they were. Let's go on the road at AM and Jimbo Fisher, a 17 point favorite, drops this game 17 14. And maybe should have been worse. I mean, if you just look at number of plays
1: ran, I mean, App State was like doubling them or something like that. There's been this kind of feeling around AM this whole time. Can they ever get the offensive going offense going? And they certainly have not yet. Outside of that one result against Alabama last year, they looked very pedestrian. Now you could talk about was quarterback issues. Well, they got a lot of quarterback options this year and they're not getting it done. Man, I mean, he's got like a lifetime guaranteed contract there. So I don't know if there's anything to do, but I think they are
2: panicking right now. Yes, they are. And it's really interesting because this was a guy at Florida State who had great offense after great offense after great offense and has not had that at A&M, and I, for one, really liked his offense on film. We talk about it when Florida played Florida State. They don't look like that at A&M. They've just not been able to get that going. App State, though, should be 2-0, and but this is the win they'll take anyway. There's an amazing video of, uh, of, of yes. what's going on there on the local campus after the win, and it's like just two factions of students sprinting at each other, meeting in the street. And that's everything that college sports should be about, and Again, we mentioned App State's got to be really happy that Napier is not there at Louisiana. And wins like these are actually affirming if you're in the Napier camp. You know, Napier beat this team consistently. And this team now goes out and gets results like this. So, again, if you're wondering, you know, should I be afraid or worried or concerned? You know, probably not. There's good confirming results here. But either way, great start by App State. All right, Tennessee on the road against Pitt. We get a push in this one. It goes to overtime. Tennessee wins 34-27, a really entertaining football game.
1: Yeah, it was a really wild one. Um, fun effort from both teams. I think they're they're pretty evenly matched for the most part, that kind of a back-and-forth affair. Tennessee is definitely glad to come out of there with a win, though.
2: Yeah, for sure. Tennessee now setting up to be undefeated when they play Florida potentially. Iowa State taking on Iowa. You and I both picked the Clones, and in an absolute arena league scoring fest, <laughs> Iowa State wins ten to seven.
1: I mean, if you're Iowa, I don't know what can can you really just keep watching this team that's going to score seven points no matter what, whether it's by safeties or by a touchdown. I mean. It is so anemic. It looks like you give them a million quarters and they could never get to like 40 points. I don't know.
2: It is unreal, actually. All right. Number 13, USC, Lincoln Riley goes into Stanford. They only wind up winning 41-28, but that score does not do the score justice. They were just smoking them for almost the entire game. And Stanford, this isn't a
1: vintage Stanford team. I'm not quite ready to
2: crown USC, but they got to feel really good about where they're at right now. Again, if you're a USC fan, you got the instant miracle cure pill in Lincoln Riley, and Lincoln Riley got what he wanted, which is playing against a bunch of soft-pack 12 teams for a long time. Uh, Number 10, Baylor. You and I both took them on the road against BYU. Look, I got it. BYU, nobody was really talking about BYU entering into this season. Last year was the transition year, which we talked about. The year before, they were really good, and apparently they are really good again this year because that was a great football game, and BYU matched Baylor's physicality. And wound up getting a win twenty six twenty at home. Yeah,
1: I got a just me a culpa here on BYU. I just didn't think they could handle this, and I was shocked that they were favored. Baylor, you know, was one of my picks for the playoff. I th- I still think Baylor is a really good team. There's no shame in losing to BYU on the road, but I just didn't think BYU was there yet, and not there yet, but still there or whatever. I mean, I don't know. That was really impressive to me.
2: Yeah, very impressive. Uh, it's going to set up an amazing holy war between BYU and Utah later on this year. That's for sure. Keep an eye on that one. And Alan, you lost your Baylor playoff pick in most scenarios, but you weren't Desmond Howard, who has <laughs> lost basically all of them. He had Baylor, A&M, Pittsburgh. Yeah, Yeah, all gone. I don't know about that. Nice work. All right, uh, Bama. Well, what a game this was. I'm sure all of you watched it. Bama on the road against Texas. Texas loses 2019 I think Texas wins this game if Quinn Ewers does not go down early. He was diamond early. He was confident. He felt good. Texas, even then, had a million chances to win. And then, of course, as Bama does, sneaks out a W at the end.
1: Yeah, Bryce Young played really well at the end there to get them in a position to win. Alabama kicker came through. Yeah, Texas, I feel like you got to feel really good about this, right? That you lost your starting star quarterback and you still – Almost one. Defensively, I was shocked. The reason I like this number, I thought Texas would be able to score a little bit, but I didn't think they would be able to stop Bama at all. Bama looks really pedestrian, at wide receiver. You know, I wasn't buying the Burton transfer hype, but I thought they would have some more guys that they would still be able to roll out there and be dangerous enough, and they didn't look that dangerous.
2: No, and their offensive line for the first time in a long time was not a wall. And we talked about that with Mac Jones. And I think Mac Jones this season, we're going to see what he does in the NFL. But when you're throwing behind a wall and you have five seconds and you have NFL first round draft picks, your quarterback can be really effective. And Bryce Young, I thought, earned a lot of respect in this game because he did not have those things. He did not have wide open receivers and he did not have a lot of time. And he hung in there and did what Bryce Young does, which is get a W at the end. Great environment, though. Really fun game. And look, Texas hiring Gary Patterson, a guy who's long been known as a defensive guru, I think kind of got forgotten about because TCU fell off there towards the end, has come into Texas and revamped that defense in a hurry and now is becoming a popular head coaching candidate again, obviously, at some other jobs we will mention. But either way, that was a lot of fun. It's good for college football if Texas is good. That's a good thing for football. It's one of those schools you want them to be good. It helps balance things out, and uh, I really enjoyed that one. I wanted Texas to win, unfortunately they couldn't do it. So here goes Bama carrying on uh, onto their, you know, Death Star. But the Death Star has some weaknesses that I think, as you mentioned, yeah. I mean, can't I think about. that we felt
1: like they're by far the number one team, and. If we're just taking these two data points, I think you have to move off that a little bit to say they're way more vulnerable than they look. Oh, for coming sure. Into the year,
2: for sure, and that's what's great about playing the games versus predicting them. All right? Notre Dame loses to Marshall.
1: <laughs> of course, we didn't even have this on here because why no. would you?
2: Marcus Freeman now o and two. Are you worried? If you're really o and three, a...
1: if you want to count that ball game, that they are you employed? worried if
2: you're a Golden Domer? Yes. Now, really, you're
1: hiring him because you would like his upside and obviously they're recruiting at a really high level and you expect him to take some bumps. It's like, but that the bumps are like, Oh, you lost to Purdue and you shouldn't have not to lose to Marshall. I I don't know. This could be one of those situations where he just does not have it as a head coach yet or anywhere in the near future. It doesn't matter how good he recruits because they can't win football games and they're doomed. I don't know, but losing to Marshall in this fashion really cause you to go, whoa! Oh, now it's too early to like totally just like jump up and down the panic button, but you're hovering over it.
2: Yeah. I think I'm okay. if I'm a golden Domer because he's recruiting really well. His defense is playing really well and offense is the problem. And since he's a DC, it's year one. Maybe they struggle through this year. He signed the top five class and maybe they make a move with offense. But right now their offense is killing them. They just cannot move the ball or score points. This could be a long year for Notre Dame. It also goes to something we talked about. Although Brian Kelly is a weird match in LSU, Brian Kelly had my tremendous respect as a football coach. And I think Notre Dame fans are really feeling that now uh, through these first two games is I have no doubt that a Brian Kelly led team, they snuck out a lot of those games. They'd find ways to win. Uh, but you know, that was a better fit for sure than where he is at LSU. We'll see what happens there. All right. Georgia Southern beats Nebraska. Frost is gone. A guy that I was super high on and staying in the state of Florida or coaching in the South, a guy that I was not high on and going to Nebraska. We had talked about this so many times, but it looked like he didn't even want to go there. And then he just looks like a shell of himself now. I mean, to think of where he's gone from, Alan, top of the mountaintop, everybody wanted him. To embarrassment, to the 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 losingest most Nebraska coach in modern in the modern era, and a guy that they didn't want to wait three weeks to fire to save seven point five million dollars. That's
1: egregious to me. The fact that they had to—I don't know what
2: was compelling or the what
1: reason they had—they thought they had to fire him. Now everybody knows you're going to fire him. Yeah, there's no damage to you to just wait three weeks. Everyone is already assuming you're going to do that. Correct. The fact you felt like we have to pay $7 million to have this guy leave. What what are you trying to salvage here? That, that was crazy to me.
2: Unreal. And again, we talked about this when they extended him. And this is another, I believe, you know, piece of evidence for the three-year test. There's no sense in keeping these guys in general, once they get past this failed test in the modern, in the modern era. And maybe Scott Frost will be the guy that'll go somewhere else and he'll break the three-year test and he'll be the anomaly that crops up and wins. But so far, these guys that get fired like this don't ever pan out at that level. Now, that's still interesting to me. We got to see what happens to Nebraska. Nebraska is no longer in the Big 12. They don't get to play much easier opponents. A lot of that has to do with like Bo Polini's record and whatnot. The Big 10 is much harder, but keep an eye on that one. Is that job even a good one? We'll chronicle it, you know, as we go through this season. All right. Daytona Steve entered the week 0 2. And this is a brutal week in college football betting. So, Daytona, you're not alone here. But uh, did not win his parlay. Did not win his lock of the week, which was Baylor, which was quite the aggressive lock of the week in general. I respect it. We'll see what he's got cooked up for this week. All right, the rest of the SEC... Georgia played Sanford then went 33-0 which was not great by the way yeah. the offense was uh pretty pedestrian there was there was a little bit of concern I was reading from the the poodles about that performance you know they were and riding were, high after Oregon I mean nothing to fear but they were you know they came down a little bit from the were in an unstoppable offensive juggernauts yeah, maybe we still could have some issues I don't know if they were even awake for that
1: one whatever San Jose State Auburn. Yeah, a little close.
2: little close. Auburn wins 24 16. little close. I think <laughs> Auburn fans and Chris Musgrove, our good buddy who co hosted the show once. I mean, there's a lot of malaise, is the right word of uh-huh. the program right now. Not great.
1: Not great. Yeah. San Jose State was up 10 7 at halftime. So if that tells you anything,
2: Ole Miss just rips through Central Arkansas 59 to 3. Yeah, we have not heard anything about Lane Kiffin yet, which is a testament to Lane Kiffin's new persona. And when the big games come, we'll hear it. But he's just sort of quietly operating, waiting for his moment. I'm really interested to see what they do this year. They're a total
1: wild card. All right. Southern at LSU. LSU wins 65-17. Yeah, nothing to see there. And then Mississippi State beats a really game Arizona team, I think. Thirty nine seventeen. people were really liking
2: Arizona this year in the Pac-12 they're a little but, frisky uh, but this is what Mike Leach does and we said this early at Mississippi State give him time and he will produce nine and ten games and if you can't stop them they will kill you they'll kill you and so I think he loved going back to the Pac-12 and be like oh this is great I don't have to face these SEC teams that can really you know give my air raid problems but uh I love, I love, I love watching Mississippi State play now. Like they were on super late night, and of course I watched them play some because I love the air raid. It brings me so much joy. They're slinging it all over the yard, and uh, off to a good start there in Starkville.
1: Okay, let's talk about those USF Bulls.
2: They're one and one, but not yeah. quite the same one and one. Yeah, right. Smoked by BYU in game one, which now doesn't look like such a bad loss. Uh, but struggled, struggled to get a win this week over a, a you know much more inferior opponent, at least early, and ran away late.
1: Yeah, UF is ranked 18th currently and they're favored by 24 and a half points. If you remember, Florida won this game last year quite convincingly. AR does some amazing stuff, pulls his hamstring late in that game. All right, a little bit of an overview here. Jeff Scott's their third-year coach. He's the old Clemson OC. Let's say mixed success so far to be a little bit generous. Uh, significant talent advantage for Florida. USF is 65th in the composite. They have five, four stars. Uh, returning starters, USF has 20. Third most returning production in the country. So, whereas UF, the least in the SEC. So, a lot of returning guys for them. Their coaching staff is a little bit newer. Travis Trickett's their first year OC. Bob Shoop his first year there. Uh, was the Miami defensive? It was a Miami defensive analyst in 2021. Have been at Michigan before that. So returning production, new systems. Let's talk about a little bit of their personnel. Uh, Gary Bohannon, formerly a Baylor. Thus far, last week, uh, 391 yards passing, two picks. A few RBs of note: Brian Batty, Jaron Mangum, Michelle Dukes, Michael Dukes you can say. And at receiver, Xavier Worthy, who had some nice stats thus far. All right. When you look at them offensively, what are you picking
2: up from them? Well, they, they pass the ball about 55% and run 45. They're not particularly good at either. And they're slightly better at rushing the ball. I think the key to take away from what you just read out there is that Xavier Weaver is an absolute talent. I mean, an absolute dumb target hog. Like, it's a pretty easy game plan for Florida in this one. They should expect that when USF throws, they want to throw it to Weaver. So Florida needs to give extra attention there. He's the guy who's going to get a lot of the targets and a lot of their balls. Florida should expect, and this is this is going to be interesting. If I'm Florida, I can expect two things. I create two little game plans. One, they're going to run their own stuff and say, Hey, you know what? We're probably not going to beat Florida anyway. We're just going to run when we run and use it as a chance to get better at what we do. In that case, it's none of the stuff that's plagued Florida. They run a lot of 11 personnel. They run much more of a spread offense. These are all things Florida should do very well against. However, however I would also fully prepare my team to face a more tactical week-to-week approach where they're going to come in and run heavy sets and things we've seen already from both Utah and Kentucky because you'd have to have your head in the sand to not see how well that's worked against Florida. But that's kind of your breakdown. I think I'm not going to say which way they're going to go, but it seems to me in the past that teams that are generally inferior to the bigger schools don't mess around as much with the week to week. I'm going to be a different style team and they just use it as a chance to run their stuff. If I'm USF, I can tell you for sure. I'm running goal line offense and I'm trying to win this football game in the way that the film tells me to win it. So we'll see. That should be a fun kind of thing to know, but all in all, Uh, No matter what they choose to do on offense, Florida should be more than capable of of limiting them pretty significantly. And Bohannon's an
1: accomplished player at quarterback. He's the guy who won at Baylor last year, lost the job to a guy who's younger than him and transferred out.
2: So he's not a a
1: dud. He's 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 a higher
2: level guy than they normally would have Absolutely. And he's having a nice start to the year and and, and they're fine. Again, look, they played a BYU team who's obviously really good. So that's their bad loss. And I expect them to be better than what Florida experienced last year. In some regards, uh, and it's just hard this early on in the year. You know, what are they made of? They played one real team and one nobody. So we're going to find out.
1: Okay, defensively, yeah, maybe a little bit less successful. Way less successful. So uh, the player note here, number 22, defensive back, Makai Lapointe leads their team
2: in tackles. Which is really bad. You don't want your DB to be leading your team in tackles. that tells the
1: story there as well. Yeah, what are they trying to do? What do you expect them to do for Florida? Well, their
2: their rush defense, their run defense is horrific. It's one of the worst in all of college football right now, and that's largely why BYU just destroyed them. Now, if BYU can run all over them, what does that say about Florida, right? We should be able to run all over them. Their pass defense is slightly better than their run defense. Not exactly great, but better. Uh They play cover one a good amount of the time. So they'll play cover one man 25% of the time and mostly cover three after that. If that sounds a whole lot like Kentucky, that's because largely it is except Kentucky plays less man defense than that. Uh, but that's pretty much in line for them to run the Kentucky game plan. So what should Florida expect us to do um, us have to do? I would expect them to do exactly what every other team is going to do, which is load the box, bring pressure just like Kentucky did to, uh, to AR's escape side or to his right side to mix up zone and man and to force Richardson to pass. Make sure your defenders hold the edge. If you want to run inside zone or outside zone with your running backs, let them try that all day long. But just basically frustrate AR and make them one-dimensional, which is you have to pass and you can't pass well, right? So I expect that's what USF is going to try to do. Now, whether or not they can do it, we're going to find out the best-case scenario for Florida here, Alan, is they see a lot of the same exact looks they just saw last week, but they have success against them because they're more talented, which then breeds confidence heading into Tennessee. That's the best-case scenario. I, for one, hope... USF copies that Kentucky game plan because we could use those kind of reps heading into our next big game. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens there. I mean, I,
1: yeah, I think it would be good for Florida statistically if if USF is just not able to stop base Florida running plays and Florida runs for a million yards, right? That That's fun. But probably doesn't help you improve in the ways you want to improve. So I don't know if they'll be able to mimic what Kentucky did results-wise, obviously because they don't have the same athletes at linebacker that Kentucky had. But it'll be interesting to see if they employ these same tactics. It seems like they would.
2: They should. Who knows? I mean, if if you don't, I'm not sure what your defensive coordinator is doing because unlike offense, defenses can be totally fluid. You should be bending your defense to what you're facing. And offense, you can tend to be more systematic and say, we're going to run our stuff. In the NFL, of course, you range from Belichick, who's going to be very game opponent specific, to to you know Cliff Kingsbury, who's going to be very system oriented. So there's different flavors depending on what you want. Okay, special teams
1: favors Florida here. Penalties, unsurprisingly, favors USF. Although Florida has gotten better, They've gotten better so far. They're cutting them. There down. you go. Turnover margin favors USF ever so slightly. Yeah, and time possession largely a push there. Uh, I think we have this injury suspensions depth chart section. Uh, Which used to be full early yeah. season all the time. But there, I don't think that the staff is going to give injury updates until Wednesdays normally. So this is going to be a blind spot for us recording on Mondays. But no news on Ventral Miller or Michael Tarquin. We do know Jack Miller still not ready to go. So that is still not an option for the floor staff. And it
2: certainly looked bad for Tarquin. It would be surprising True. if that wasn't a rather significant injury. But I hope for his sake it's not and for the team's sake because he's been kind of waiting in the wings for a while. And he's been solid thus far.
1: And I would bet we wouldn't see Ventral Miller in this game. I don't think this is a
2: game that Florida has to have him. No, and if anything, win. it's a good opportunity for the team to see what some right. of these other guys can do. I think it's a nice – I think it almost coincides nicely to see what – Yes, the I think can. you just – even if he would maybe be on the margin of ready that you wouldn't want to play him
1: health wise for him and for the development. Of your Absolutely, team. Absolutely. Totally agree.
2: All right, let's get to prediction time. Why don't you give us your keys to the game first? All right. This, this game is going to boil down to one thing and one thing only. There's only one thing that matters in this game, but I'm going to give you two keys. Cause I gotta give you a defensive one, but there's really only one and that's going to be can Anthony Richardson pass the football competently in this game. That's it. That's the key to the game that's going to be the key to the season. Can he bounce back? Can he rebuild his confidence before we go on the road to Tennessee? And if that's going to happen, I'm not going to give a stat because you could get yards doing all kinds of stuff. You could have completions. I want the, I want to be able to come on the podcast and say he went back to the things he could have done well. He moved safeties and linebackers with his eyes. His footwork was good. He threw on time. He was calm. He was in control, right? That's what I want to see. I want to see a progression back to where he was. So that's my key to the game is I'm typing in here that AR progresses, hopefully not just back to where he was, but actually beyond where he was. And he completes passes against some of these defenses he's been struggling to. And let's face it, this year, Alan, he has not had a good passing game yet. So hopefully he has what's a productive passing game. And on defense, I think for the defense here, I want to see something I don't know the answer to. Which is, can we get more competent linebacker play? And I'm gonna, I'm gonna say, can we get more strong safety with Dean? So I'm gonna go strong safety play and more competent linebacker play. And I'm gonna categorize this by how many times they blow a responsibility. So if a TE, so if a tight end's wide open, that's a blown response. That's one. And I'm gonna say that if we've gotten better, that we should only have. I'm gonna be kind here. We should only have three of those during the game. So that means a, a blown gap responsibility, a blown assignment, you know, two guys covering one guy, three would be an improvement. We've had about seven last game, about 10 the first game. So when to go three, what you would consider to be just kind of blown assignments or messed up scenarios. If we can get three or under here, that's going to be an improvement from the previous week. So that would mean AR progresses, our defense progresses. And if both those things happen, we're going to win this game easily.
1: Yeah, I'm very similar to you. I, I don't, have a metric for AR. I guess you could count air yards,
2: like per attempt. Yeah, that's actually uh, that's actually a nice one. I like that. Yeah, let's give me give me some air yard numbers here. This is good. How many air yards you want? Average. This is a funky stat to yeah. like, calculate in my th- head here. Yeah, I think you just go total air yards. I think that's that's okay. that's total gonna air be air that, air that already's baked in there. It's gotta it's gotta be air. So just go total. air. I yards. just
1: uncovered this out loud here. Uh, do you have a number of what you would think would be? a good number for him
2: well i mean all right let's say chunk yards let's say that we want we want him to throw how many passes more than 15 yards should he complete in this game i would like i'd like to see a healthy amount six seven maybe yeah i was thinking that yeah so you know figure that's uh like maybe around 100 yards go for it could be a lot more it should be a lot more but i'm gonna say you know
1: say 125 okay
2: which would be nice. He's throwing for like one thirty five, one forty. These are not these are not Kyle Trask like numbers here. Yeah, and we're air going yards. For what that means is like air yards,
1: yeah. how far is the ball traveling in the air, correct. right? Because if you throw
2: a wide receiver screen, you're it's basically going one. It yard. goes one yard, and you could take a ninety nine. You yeah. get ninety nine passing yards, but you get one air yard. Yep. correct, exactly.
1: And I want to. I want defensively. I'm looking at similar things here for you. This would be number of. Uh, we can use chunk plays here by their tight ends. So I like it. I like it. They I'm don't even. See.
2: They barely even play one tight end. I know they don't even play tight ends. But if, if you're, <laughs> but hey, they're gonna find one. They're gonna find one this week and put but them. But Kentucky
1: there. doesn't throw their tight
2: ends either. No, so- they don't. No, you're right. I I like the stat. This is important. They're gonna. Do, right. If I'm them, I'm finding a way to yeah,
1: do. Yeah, and I want to see
2: less than three there. Okay, I like that. Less than three. This is good. Again, we're being very kind. Like, yeah. Once we turn the corner on this, this should be less than one. <laughs> you know, but we're gonna go three. I like it. Okay. Three is the number. Okay, cool. All right, prediction time then, Alan, you're up first. Man, (laughs) this feels so hard. Uh, It is hard. We have no clue what we're going to get here.
1: Yeah, the variance scale is off the charts. I'm tempted to like middle it, but that doesn't feel like I'd be right. It feels like we're either going to struggle or we're going to do well. So middling it, I'm like almost assured to be wrong, it feels like, but I – I don't have a gut feeling on this. Um, Man, I guess (laughs) this is the prognostication. Sometimes we come out of a session and I'm like, even the Kentucky score, if we play normal,
2: yeah, feels like we would have hit that pretty close. Oh, I think we would have. Yeah, totally right.
1: I don't know here. 30-17 feels like a totally random score that I'm going to deliver there. I have no confidence in either of those numbers. Okay.
2: 30 to 17. And I, this might surprise you and some others. I think Florida is going to rebound to the high side here. Uh, Billy Napier obviously was my number one choice for this gig. I also think he, you know, won back-to-back championships at Louisiana for a reason in a conference that had App State in it. I think he knows how to bounce back. I think he's a guy who learns from failure. I don't know What's going to happen with AR, but I believe as a systems guy, the system guy, that Billy's going to have a better plan for what would happen or what he's going to do if the lights are not on, so to speak. And I think that will make a big difference in this game. So therefore, I think Florida's going to win this game 48 to 13. So that'd be really good. That would be super encouraging. That's what I'm thinking. Now you've got uh, middle. You basically went middle, which I is what you went said. Middle. The, the, I did. The didn't dark. Want to. The dark story. The dark timeline is where we maybe play a really tight game. Well, the dark uh, timeline is we win or lose like
1: 23-20. Yeah,
2: which you know we're favored by 24 and a half. But look, if you've watched college football recently, 24 and a half is not necessarily a safe thing to be favored by. So 17 feels about right for USF. Yeah. And you're just, you're, you're saying, Oh yeah. 17 feels right. But you're saying for us, like obviously not yeah, yeah. 30 seems very easy for us to walk into. I mean, I think your score is reasonable. I'm taking the higher end than I basically for sure. added points. So we're going to see, it's going to be a really interesting week. All right. During this week, if you want, you can pop over to our friends at hello fresh and you can pick up America's most popular meal kit. As we've been telling you each week, it's fun, affordable. It makes cooking very easy. And our resident dietitian Amber, stands by it. As she has reviewed it, she loves it. She's ordering more of her own. The convenience is a 10 out of 10. Uh, essentially, there's all sorts of different menu items you can choose from. And HelloFresh has changed their deal. Now, you can get 65% off any number of meals you want if you go to HelloFresh.com GNFP65 and then use the code GNFP65 for 65% off plus free shipping. That's HelloFresh.com slash GNFP65 to enjoy those meals. If you do try them out, let us know. We love to get feedback on how you enjoyed it. All right, let's take us into the week three slate. Alan, what is on tap for our viewing pleasure?
1: Well, I'm tempted to say there's not a lot of marquee games here, but I would have been tempted to say that about last week. So who knows (laughs) if these will be the games that we're talking about this time next week, but Got a few phone ones here. Friday night, Florida State favored by one and a half
2: at Louisville. Man, Florida State's really just embracing these Friday night games. Yeah, This is where their program is at. I don't know what to make of either of these teams. I tried picking against Florida State, and they burned me with LSU. Uh, Florida State's much more talented than Louisville is. Louisville got a win over UCF by six. This is a coin flip, but I guess I'll take Florida State. I mean, this feels bad. I don't like either one. I would never,
1: ever touch this.
2: No, of course not.
1: Don't bet on this. I wouldn't bet this with your money. But uh, you have to bet
2: this for fun money.
1: I'll go to Louisville. Okay. Just because I Why think- not? The fact that they bounced back so hard from that week one. Week one, it looked like, whoa, what is going on with them? That's a great point. All right. Number one, University of Georgia Bulldogs,
2: favored by 24 and a half at South Carolina. Yeah, this feels like a lock for me. 24 and a half at South Carolina. I mean, I I the Arkansas game last week was a lock over South Carolina covering. And Georgia's way better than Arkansas is. South Carolina, they're feisty and nice. I think that's great. I think Beamer's doing a really nice job there, but they're not ready for this kind of game yet. So, yeah, I'm going to take Georgia here. The only hesitation I
1: have is this is a this is a game that traditionally like spooks Georgia. Like they lose to South Carolina in weird years, and 24 and a half a lot. It is a lot. But I'm going to go Georgia. Okay. Here I thought
2: you America. were setting up. That was only my only hesitation. Genius. Now, that's
1: fair. If, if Georgia
2: wins by like seven, it's that weird South Carolina mojo. Cool, that would be remarkable for South Carolina if they keep it like that. This Georgia team just does not feel like a team that's going to win by seven. Not right. right now. Here's a very curious line. This seems insane. This can't be right, but it is right. We double checked like, it.
1: It's even lower than what B Red had originally. It's nuts. Number six, Oklahoma, only favored by 11 and a half at Nebraska who just fired their coach. Maybe they're thinking there's like that fired coach bounce back there. They're thinking that.
2: That's for sure.
1: I'm, I'm not taking thinking
2: Oklahoma that. all day long. I mean, there's a world of talent difference between these two teams and a lot. I mean, I know Nebraska plays a lot of teams within one score, but Scott Frost is not there anymore. Perhaps they now lose by more. I don't know. I'm taking Oklahoma either way. Yeah. That number is way too low. Who knows? We don't know. All right. A
1: feisty Texas tech team. At number 16, NC State, who's favored by 10 and a half. you, fa-
2: you buying NC State stuff? Right I have now? not been buying NC State all year long, and I'm not going to buy them here. Texas Tech tends to not be a good road team. That makes me nervous, but I'm going to take Texas Tech here with the points.
1: I'll join you. Okay, Notre Dame. Here we are. they on the slate here. Will, B-Red says, will they get
2: their first W? Cal at Notre Dame. Notre Dame favored by 10. At this point in time, I think it's really hard to take Notre Dame favored by such a large margin because their offense is so bad. But Cal's a soft Pac-12 school. Feels like Notre Dame might hold them to three points. Can they win more than 13 to three? I wouldn't bet on it. I'm going to take Cal. Me too. I don't. Notre Dame just lost
1: to Marshall. I don't know how you could take them and points against a Pac-12 team.
2: You can't take points because they can't score points. That's the biggest problem. I don't don't like it. If this game was like at one, I might pick Notre Dame. But 10? 10 is a lot. Okay.
1: This is a fun one. Number 12, BYU at number 25, Oregon. Oregon favored
2: by three and a half. Interesting. BYU is playing a, a fun opening schedule here, aren't they? Yeah. I mean, Baylor followed by Oregon. They're really on a roll here. They were favored by three. Yes, they were. Well, BYU gets a strong home lean. Yeah, a little bit of altitude. Sure. Mm-hmm. They tend to get a boost there. I I'm sorry, but I cannot bet on a favorite Oregon team that got just the break speed off of them by Georgia, and now it's playing a BYU team that is full of confidence. I'm going to take BYU. Me too. I I don't. I can't pick against BYU two
1: weeks in a row like that. All right, number 22, Penn State,
2: only favored by two and a half at Auburn. I mean, here's how little people think of Penn State right now. For sure. Is that Florida lost to Kentucky looking like a train wreck, like a hot mess, and Florida's still ranked ahead of Penn State. Auburn, on the other hand, blew it last year against them. <laughs> I don't know what to think of this game. These two teams are so completely not trustable. But I'm going to say that maybe James Franklin finds a way to win this one.
1: I was really hoping you were going to go for Auburn here. I'm at Penn State for sure here. Auburn hasn't shown me anything. I know, yet. but Harson, just
2: wait for it. He's going to have a big moment. I feel like he's going to do it. Okay. Oh, I love this one. Me too. I love this one. <laughs> Let's go, Mississippi State. Only favored by two, or favored by two is maybe what I wanted to say at LSU. I love it. LSU historically has given Mississippi State all kinds of problems, obviously because they have so many corners, and then they got shredded. So now it's like, where are they with Brian Kelly? Where are they in the process? I don't know. I used to have a good feel for this one. E- I'm gonna take. Uh, I'm gonna take Mississippi State because I love Mike Leach. And Man, how can I not? How can I not take Mike? Oh, I, I love, love the air State. raid. Yeah, I have I love to take. I'm all in. I don't think LSU is ready for this at all. I'm not I don't, ready for this I mean, Leach spice. I don't here. think they are either. They've had a hard time stopping it anyway. So. Hmm. All right, you're on the board. I mean, I love, I love picking Mike Leach. It makes me so happy. We here. are. Oh, I guess I took Louisville. At That's the one one difference. Only <laughs> <laughs> one hey, difference.
1: We're, we're vibing. All right, number eleven, Michigan State at Washington, who's favored by three. Be red in print he says UW favored? Question mark.
2: A lot of people are fading Michigan State this year. They're waiting for this regression. Yeah. Uh, but you know, I I think until proven otherwise, I'm going to ride Michigan State here.
1: Like, what does Vegas know here that I don't know?
2: They always when, know something.
1: When a line is this curious, I'm forced to go, I I, I don't know. But I, I
2: can't pick Washington, I don't think. Can I? That feels crazy. I'll, I'll take Michigan State. It seems crazy to take the number 11 team and get three points on the road against a you know Pac-12 team. And how do you not take that? I mean,
1: uh-huh. I there's a big chance we're going to show up here next week and go, Yeah, I guess they knew. I don't know. All right. Theoretically here, the game of the weekend. Number 13, Miami at number 24, Texas A&M, who's favored by five and a half.
2: You really have to ask yourself if A&M can score enough points to eclipse that five and a half because App State gave up a smooth 60 plus points against North Carolina in week one. They did. Only to give up only 14 against A&M. I have to take Miami with these points here, and I will. All right, this is super boring, but I'm going to join you
1: there. Miami, I think, is at least competent right now. I I, I would sell them at n- rank number 13. Oh, for sure. But 5 you're, they're getting five and a
2: half points.
1: Yeah, and AM I don't know. They look like trash. And App State is good, but it wasn't, that good. wasn't a fluky game. App State dominated them.
2: No, correct. And I think the real problem is... They didn't score points on a defense that got shredded by North Carolina. App State's offense is always very good. Yeah, That's what's good. But that defense should not have been able to stop them like they did. Yeesh. All right. Might get a little crazy there in College Station. Could be. But okay. so, yeah, this slate, I think it's very interesting like it lacks oh, that fun ones. it lacks like the marquee headliner but a lot of these games are going to be very intriguing and that's why college football is great all right daytona steve cannot get enough of the app state magic he's going to have them at 12 and a half versus troy he's backing utah minus 21 versus san diego state and is backing usc minus 11 and a half versus a game fresno state team so this should be pretty interesting here. The odds are six to one. I feel like Daytona Steve is really creeping towards a win. He just wants to get a win like a six to one parlay. He might as well just take a straight up bet somewhere. Either way, he needs a win. I feel it. We all need a win. He called this the, in the all kinds of weather parlay. All kinds of weather. We stick together there, Daytona Steve. All right, Alan, that's going to conclude our show. Any other thoughts from you this week?
1: No, I always enjoy coming here and talking about whatever's going on with Gator football, even in disappointment. It's therapeutic for me. I know it is for others. You got to get these thoughts out of your head. We love this team probably too much. So it's good to get those kind of feelings, emotions, thoughts out there. Have clear headed look into next week.
2: Yeah, for sure. We love football. I love football as well. I love uh, bringing this show to you guys, producing the content that we produce. We're glad that you love it. We love the support. And as always, if you have any feedback, thoughts, concerns, considerations, fire them on over to us. We were serious earlier when we said that, of course, learning from failure, learning from feedback is the best way to go. And this show has been built entirely around all the feedback we've gotten from you throughout the seven years that we've done it. So we look forward to being back with you next week where we will have in studio little Peyton as we prepare ourselves for Tennessee, my favorite game week of the year. Until then, enjoy the week, enjoy the weekend, and we will see you next week.